So are you you're recording now? I am recording now. Yes. Okay, great. So don't 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 mention your social security number, your mother's maiden name, <laughs> anything like that. Yeah, no, no you're right. Basically, I was kind of um, drawn to. I, I can't remember where I started listening to listening to your show. Um, like I can't remember because it because it was your show on on the network that I listened to first. Well, the first thing you you the first time I remember uh, you coming into contact with me was when you were talking about Shadowhawk. So it might have been that you okay. got, got brought in with the Shadowhawk show because we've still talked about it one of these days doing something with Shadowhawk. And you know I'm open to that, but I don't yeah. want to. You you've also got a young child at home, and it's later for you, so I'm not no, but, into that. But uh, but that's why that's my recollection of. of first making contact yeah you might have done some likes or retweets or something before that but in terms of yeah. actually discussing stuff with us i think it was shadow hawk yeah no i i think um i i i think i've got like an imagine um an admiration for the, the fact that you stuck with shadow hawk for so long um so 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 my my background was um getting into comics in the early 90s jim lee's x-men number one was the one that pushed me over the line into in and it coincided with me having a job where um i had money and no bills to pay because i was 17 living with my parents um, so all of my money went on comics I discovered a comic shop which meant that after buying my first comic in a newsagent all of a sudden I had three months worth that were ahead of the newsagents um, so it meant I could I bought X-Men 1 one week went to a comic shop the next week bought 2 and 3 and then discovered X-Force 1 2 and 3 and then Spider-Man 1 2 and 3 and X-Factor and just went off on one you know um, and so I bought all of that image stuff I had a standing order which was which was extreme uh, all image basically and I, and I remember distinctly one day having spent about 70 quid on on, on new comics and sitting there in the sun in a, on a day off with a pile of comics and looking at like Brigade and Bloodstrike and these things and thinking God something's got to give like <laughs> this is awful I can't I can't keep doing this um, and, and then that's when I sort of moved over to I don't know Dark Horse and things ended up working in a in a, in a really good comic shop in London in, in, in Gosh and then spent about 10 years working there which is probably where my working comic shops most sort of parallels your own um so it's, it's really interesting listening to somebody bang on about spawn 26 when no one no one else cares but but, but i'm quite fascinated by the greg capullo mcfarlane who drew it who inked it type stuff um so yeah thanks for that yeah i made a point of checking out as many of the shops in in town were, were you in edinburgh at that time or you said london so, didn't you? well so so i'm born i was born in london lived in barcelona for eight years and I've been in Edinburgh since 2012 um, so I would have been here when 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 you came to visit but yeah I'm originally from London worked in Gosh there but I've been out of comic shops for I don't know for 20 years now I think do you frequently you, the, the shops in that area yeah I mean Edinburgh's got not much going for it there's Forbidden Planet which is um, which is which is good I, I, I like the staff but it's basically um, new comics and, and merchandise like nothing in the way of back issues at all and then there's a there's another comic shop which is basically run by a madman I mean he's like a full on full on madman um, so he, he threw me out of his shop and told me I was the worst customer he ever had for wanting to look inside a, a comic <laughs> 
that that was uh, that that was mad. And it's funny you mentioned martial law because because he know he doesn't have anything. I mean, you know, you went there. He doesn't have anything priced. He doesn't doesn't have anything in order to speak of. And um, I went in before I had all my martial like all the issues. He he had a martial law issue. I pulled it out. No price on it. How much is that? And he went uh seven pound. And I was like, yeah, I'm not going back there. Like I'm not getting into. Oh this. yeah, I I, mean, I, I yeah no. I, I have gotten commissions in recent years. I've, I've started to kind of pull back on that some. But one of my red flags when it comes to commissions is when I'm talking to somebody and I'm like, Yo, what, what, you know, what's your rates? You know, do you have a rate list? Anything like that? And they're like, oh, what do you think it's worth? It's like, oh, fuck off. Okay, I know you're in <laughs> yeah. more trouble than you're worth. Never fucking mind. Without yeah, yeah. fail, the guys who pull that shit on me are mostly their whack jobs or they're con men and I end up getting burned one way or the other. So it just pisses me off. And then with comic shops, you know, again, as a retailer, you, you know yeah. what it's like on both sides of the counter. And so being dicked around like that, you know, as a as a fan, you don't want to do that. So if you do that as a retailer, that I, you're, it's like you're even worse than if you're just some <laughs> club that is just there as a job, you know, I mean, which isn't really seemingly a thing anymore. I don't think anybody works in a comic shop if they're not a fan because there's so many more lucrative yeah. things you could do. Um, but, you know, back in the day, you'd have these guys who would just do it because there was money in it and they literally wouldn't know. And you'd still be like, well, I don't want to be dealing with this guy because he's more trouble he's worth. But um, for a fan, somebody who's obviously a collector, to do that to you is like, you son of a, like, yeah, it's, it's a huge turn off. Yeah. Is it, have you, um, you've seen the film High Fidelity, right? Um, well, I, the, I've told that story on a podcast before, haven't I? Um, have I not? So, no, no, well, okay, well, maybe, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm being presumptuous. There's no guarantee. Even if I told on a podcast, you wouldn't necessarily. I, I've listened it. to a lot. I've I, I, I just, not listened to yeah, everything. I, I, no, no, no. It's okay. It's okay. I, I, I hate, because like, I don't listen to every podcast, every person I'm friendly with. <laughs> so it's like, I, I, I try to be presumptuous. My main thing was I didn't want to repeat myself. You'd already heard the story. It's like, yeah, I heard that on no, the show. No, no. Don't, don't repeat yourself. But what happened was uh, I'd seen my, my, one of Max's favorite movies is Grow, uh, uh, High Fidel, uh, sorry, Growth Point Blank. And yeah, we were actually still doing role, yeah, and we were yeah. doing role playing at that time and I was actually supposed to kind of customize a campaign to be more like that character from that movie and I, I blew it because I was a terrible DM. Anyway, um, so <laughs> we both got really into Growth Point Blank and then uh, the, the woman that I ran the shop with, she got a bunch of like screener copies of VHSs and she kicked in my way to watch some and uh, High Fidelity was in there. So I watched it with the assumption that I was going to be watching Gross Point Blank 2, which makes no fucking sense. There's, there's yeah. no reason why my brain would even go there. But for some reason, I don't know if I was expecting that or maybe I was expecting One Crazy Summer or two or, or say anything to anything but yeah. what was actually on the screen. And so I watched it and I thought it was kind of depressing and I wasn't super into it and gave, gave the screeners back to her and, and would kind of moved on. And it came up in conversation not too long afterwards. And one of my friends, it might have been Mac or, or it might have been Fix It. I don't know which of the two. They pointed out, I don't know why you don't like that movie. It's about you. And, and and like naming the ways in which I was like Rob, how the dynamics of the shop were like the dynamics in the movie. And so the yeah. narcissism drove me back to the movie, watched again. It's like, <laughs> oh yeah, okay, now I get the appeal. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, just and, put and, that out there and, and, and then you're like which one am I which one am I um, yeah no I, so so I so the in the book version of that um, the Nick Hornby novel it's a record shop on Holloway Road in North London and I was working in my first job in a comic shop was in a comic shop three doors along from a record shop on Holloway Road um, and 
and I was going through like a, a big breakup with my with my first on and off girlfriend, uh, love of my life at the time, you know. Um, and so that film struck a serious <laughs> a serious chord with me. Um, and yeah, it's kind of followed me, like like for me that dynamic in that shop, although it's a record shop, could be a comic shop, it could be I don't know, I don't know how many other hobbies are similar, but it, it's a it's it could easily just be remade as a comic shop today. Yeah, I mean I think there's something about fandom and you can be a fan of so many different things in this world like uh, the, the the three of us went to this antique mall a few weeks back mm. or even a guy's day out and you know there's all these little there it's just all this is a stream of different weird shops here's the stamp collector shop here's the coin collector shop here's the 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 just the general antiques place here's the guy who collects fire trucks you know like Tonka trucks and stuff and just yeah. it, it was sort of like like a display of obsessions and I bet every single one of those shops has its own little collective of, of people who are just way too into the stuff know way too much about it know far too few people who can in any way communicate and and relate to any of this stuff and I, I think that's yeah. the same probably any kind of fandom that exists yeah so yeah I mean yeah. I, I think there's a it's closer I think records and comics are probably closer than a lot of this other stuff but uh, you know another one is um, um, Ghost World where you've got all the jazz collectors and stuff it, it's just yeah. you have these little communities of people that are into these niche things and you're it's almost like a weird sort of like forced cohabitation it's like these are the people who know about the stuff that I'm into so I have to have a relationship with them because there's nobody else on the planet that I can relate to about this <laughs> stuff so uh, you have that weird sort of love-hate dynamics with the things that you love and the people that share that love with you so I, I think that there's a universality to the specificity of that yeah but I don't know but the interesting thing for me with um, comics retail is just how many people have the love of it sort of beaten out of them you know um, like we used to have regulars who would come in and they would just buy comic book marketplace and previews and I think they only bought previews to find out what was coming up at comic book marketplace um, it was just it was it was so depressing like I, I was in my sort of mid to late 20s and and really in love with comics and, and you know 90s comics there was a there was a lot of shit but it was also because of working in a shop you got to you got to be on the front line of actually finding the gems you know the the, the little Frank Miller eight pages in the back of something or uh, you know Aaron Weisenfeld appears and evolves in front of your eyes or whatever and um, so I, so I have a real fondness for, for 90s comics not all of them and um, uh, and, and, and that was cool too is being in a comic shop especially being the person who orders and handles the books and puts them into the pull box and everything else you yeah. that, that, that you, you'll see you'll, you'll learn which customers have tastes that are similar to yours or you'll have a sense of what their tastes are so you can guide them in the right directions but it's great oh. when somebody comes up with something you would have never thought about would have never seen would have never crossed your, your the, the, you, if you were the customer of the shop you would never know this thing existed but because you're the yeah. one who orders it and it all passes through your hands you get to find these cool things that nobody ever heard of sometimes they never do hear of I've got these things that are like mono obscurities where I love them and I'm the only one who knows the damn thing exists um, yeah. but it definitely refines your taste which is probably one of the reasons why it gets harder to, to deal with the mainstream regurgitation of the same ideas endlessly um, but yeah. yeah you're right there are people just by virtue of handling their books will, will help to guide your taste because they give you opportunities you wouldn't have had otherwise yeah yeah absolutely and that kind of of um, the the sort of thing sort of spreads like a virus, you know. The you, you'll be into you'll be ordering five copies of something, not not having looked at it, and then someone you like will buy it, and you'll think, "Fuck, this is great!" And then within a couple of months, you're ordering twenty five because you've told another twenty people about how good it is. Um, yeah, I, I I really I really miss like I don't miss retail salary, but I really miss uh, that that kind of enthusiasm for for the work and things. Um, and then then yeah, like so so now I'm sort of conscious of trying. Not to become that comic 
comic book marketplace previews guy who's constantly banging on about how great it was in my day and how there's, there's nothing to read. You know, there's a lot of people whose work I really like, like James Stokoe, who who obviously did a did an Aliens mini as well as Godzilla and other stuff. Um, James Harron, like there's a lot of people whose work I'm really excited to see turn up in 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 previews and then, and then the shop. So so yeah, I, I'm trying not to become like a nostalgia trick. Um, and that's again the the social media is great for that for turning you on to onto stuff that um that that you hadn't seen coming. And now now if anything, the biggest problem is that there's just too much. I haven't got the money. I haven't got the space to read as much great stuff as there is. Um, but yeah, anyway, that, that's that's me. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and for me with retailing, what it was was uh, like letting people use me as their their wall. Like they they want to tell somebody something about their fandom, even if it's something that you yeah. have no interest in. And so yeah, you yeah. just sort of sit there nodding as like, yes, yes, tell me more about this thing that I have no no interest in. Oh, you're going to tell me about the same thing the, for the third or fourth time. Okay, cool, cool. That's what I'm here for. That's part of what you're paying me for is I'm the bartender. Um, and that was the aspect <laughs> that killed me. Like, like actually, it was fun. It, you know, it's Christmas every week when you're opening up the boxes and you're sorting out the yeah. books and stuff. Now, when, when you got people that are there first thing in the morning, like trying to get into the shop before it's even open, you're still getting shit out of the boxes and they want to try to be yeah. here for that. That's wanting to get their stuff pulled immediately it's like i haven't even got the stuff out of the box yet dude um but that that was the fun stuff i didn't mind that again like you said it was the conditions the money and the you know you want to keep that you want to keep these things running you're going to have to put up with folks that you wouldn't want to put up with you know or wouldn't have to put up with otherwise but i've never yeah. lost my love of the medium i love how stories are told in comic books it's my favorite way to receive a story uh you know there there's a you've got the intimacy of prose but you've got the the scale and the visual uh stimulation from film and television i just love the medium and there's always somebody doing something that i'm interested in so while yeah i'm using a lot of my middle-aged disposable income to buy deluxe hardcovers of shit that i read when i was a child i definitely mm. definitely do plenty of that but i always try to make sure i'm looking at new stuff too and it's fun to like my thing is there'll be creators that will get a fandom sometimes with the corporate comics and again the the illusion of change where nothing is ever resolved nothing is ever final like for me you know, I, I read Jim Starlin stuff and it's like I, I don't care that Warlock and Thanos came back those stories for me were told back in the 70s I didn't need them to come back and do new stories mm. with them the fact that nobody ever dies nobody ever stays dead nothing is ever permanent there's always going to be another new Robin that everybody's mad about because they had their own favorite Robin and now there's this new person who's in the role I, I, yeah. I don't I, I, I'm at a point I'm too old for corporate comics so if I go and I buy a, an independent book which is one of the reasons why I've, I've gravitated more towards that you know I can read something like Rick Remender's Low where it's telling a complete story and that story ends and it, it's satisfying and I've got those uh, books on my shelf and I'm glad that I have them because I got to see an authorial work where the person who had the story told the story into the story and then we go on to the next story um, you know I look at uh, Jeff Lemire with his Black Hammer where he was basically doing all the stuff with the 90s type of material all the stuff that James Robinson was doing redoing yeah. that in a new universe being able to tell it to completion the way that he wanted it to be told love that um, there's there's tons of stuff that out there that you know uh, I'm, I'm uh, mourning the loss of the Paper Girls TV show because 
because I really enjoyed it, how different that was from the comics. And I, 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 is, it, I is that gone for sure? Is yeah, it? well, it was canceled by Amazon Prime, and you know, they're they're legendary is talking about shopping it around, but if, if it didn't make it on Prime, what are the odds it's going to make it someplace else? You know, it, yeah. there's everybody was trying to act like it was going to be Stranger Things season five, and it's like this is not that animal, they don't have that budget. Um, you know, yeah. if anything, it was telling small scale stories compared to the comics. Um, and I, I really thoroughly enjoyed both. You know, I thought they complement each other. It was one of those instances where usually somebody does something that you enjoy and then somebody comes along and screws it up in adaptation but with this it felt almost like all the deleted scenes from the comics that we didn't get and a developing of the characters that we didn't have because the comic is actually more like a Hollywood production the comic book is a big blood but budget couple of Hollywood movies it's not a TV yeah, show yeah, yeah. Um, so the TV show gave us um, richer characters than the comics ever did but I love the comics too um, so I, I definitely never lost my love of the medium I, I've always it's just it's such a passion for me lifelong passion I don't think I can ever lose that love but you're right the grind of watching you know uh, the the latest event that's going to change everything until it changes back again uh, done by somebody you know drawing on the same characters since hardly any new creator characters have been created since the 90s since they're so creators are so terrified they're going to give away a Deadpool and they'll never be able to create anything <laughs> yeah. like that again and they'll be in, and then the publishers because they don't have new characters they're starved for new characters so they just keep coming up with permutations of the same characters I that I have no time for give, give me give me Adam Warren on, on Empower give me you know uh, uh, Birthright yeah. give me one of these other great books that I'm enjoying that will come to a conclusion at some point but in the meantime we'll tell more personal stories stories that creators are clearly invested in until you know the, the story is completely told that's what I always had the most passion for it was never reading the latest monthly Spider-Man story it was always what you know year long epic is this creator going to tell and then come to a rousing conclusion and then we see what the next thing is going to be that, that was always what I enjoyed I was always built for trade waiting I was always built for yeah. the, <laughs> the, the long form storytelling so I, I just went to where that was at where it actually matters where the gigantic monthly crossover between every title it's so meaningless and so expensive I just I, that I can't get it up for anymore yeah I mean, I, mean I, I, I follow primarily follow artists there are some writers who I follow right I mean for me it's like art the kind of the art is king if it's a great story all the better I'll find that a mediocre story will be elevated by great art so for example like like Chuck Dixon for me is a writer who is kind of boilerplate he's like 60 out of 100 maybe in general but then as soon as he's with a great artist he'll be elevated to like a 90 like it'll be some of my favourite comics because he's working with with someone who can really deliver um, deliver like his kind of straight straight head action stories or whatever so so when it comes to big big stories like I get chucked out as soon as there's a, an art change or something like that it really really throws me off it has to be something quite meaningful for me to stick with it despite despite an art change so I, modern comics does work for me but I do have to I sort of keep an eye on things I'm, I'm sort of trade waiting hoping that they don't sort of fuck things up and um, bring in some shit art it's for a third art because then I'm never going to read it um, so it's, it's kind of a uh, it, it's a it's a bit of a limitation in a way but to be honest I probably need a limitation because my house is full of books so some kind of limitation probably helps yeah for me I have my dollars it's like okay this is how many dollars I'm willing to spend on a monthly basis beyond uh, that you know I've got to justify it it's like no no like, rein it in buddy you know yeah, no, <laughs> put something I, I mean, in a 401k please you know it, it's, it's interesting since we talked about since we talked about talking there's been a um, there's been a few shows where, where artist names have come up where like we're completely we're completely opposed <laughs> and I've, I found it quite quite funny like Rick Leonardi and Klaus Janssen have come up as like oh no that's not the guy for, for this job and never been a fan of their work or whatever 
whatever. And I'm like, fucking hell, I love those guys. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, but it, everything's circumstantial too. Strokes. It's like when Terry Austin was inking Leonardo on, I think it was Cloak and Dagger. I thought that was a really yeah. great looking book. Klaus Janssen was one of the best inkers in comics for years. I love a lot of the 70s work he did, uh, especially when you do something over a guy like Gil Kane, who's somebody I really yeah. don't want to be messed with in the inking. And Klaus Janssen that messed with him Avengers. hard. Yeah, but, yeah. but in that instance, it worked so well that I thought that the, the sum was greater than the parts. I mean, I, I still prefer Gil on his own, but seeing him with Jansen in the 70s was like a, a seeing him all over again. Like a whole new artist came from that merging. So it's every artist, I think, has a place where they can belong. They're just some guys that I'm just more, you know, warm to than others. Some guys that some sure. art styles I'm warm to. Uh, we just recently were doing a, a, a podcast on Barry Windsor Smith. And it's like, for the most part, even though he has his quirks and I get tired of everybody looking sleepy all the time, <laughs> I'm pretty much always up for, for Barry Windsor Smith doing something. I just love looking at his work, period. Where are there other guys yeah. where I need them to be on the right project? You know, like uh, John Buscema on Conan bores me because I saw it for so long. But you put bon- John Buscema with Tom Palmer on the Avengers and that's some of the best <laughs> Avengers stuff that there ever was. So it just depends on, and man, I miss inkers too. Like I was just looking at uh, <laughs> uh, the previews. I was looking at like Mark Silvestri's got that Batman book he's doing. That awful it's, looking Batman book. <laughs> it's so rough. And it's like, it's not, it looks fine, but I just keep thinking about how much better it would look with, with some nice inking on that clean up all those excess lines and stuff leaving every line on there and just uh, uh, pumping up the contrast by scanning the pencils it's not yeah. the same as a gloriously inked page and it's a lo- obviously a lost form now but man I miss yeah. you know seeing that the synergy of two artists combining to make something better than the, the, the two as individuals yeah I mean Mark, Mark Silvestri I think um, so, so just a couple of things so, so John, John Buscema um, I'm probably the same as you I'll probably get like run out of town um, tied to my horse um, by a lot of the people that I interact with on, on Twitter or whatever but um, but John, John Buscema inking himself um, mo- it doesn't com- completely bore me there's moments of it where, where I really like it um, but yeah that Conan stuff if I pick up random Conan issues I've, there's very little to elevate one from the next and yet so so I, I there was a there was an art of John Buscema book it was an exhibition in Mallorca and then they did an art they did a, an exhibition catalogue with all the art I mean, I mean fucking immense beautiful exhibition and the art book um, was all the pieces in the exhibition IDW really published it looked amazing and then um, the author was like yeah so John Buscema was great of course and uh, he did these work on these Savage Conan magazines and that they, they brought in these inkers like Alcala and and um, it's just terrible and and I had to get rid of the book <laughs> uh, but I just couldn't I couldn't keep it in my collection with such stupidity um, in the in the text despite the fact it's full of pretty pictures um, but yeah the, the, the marks of thing like like for me that the last comic that i saw from him that looked halfway decent was in fact not even halfway decent i really like it darkness number one with garth ennis he did he, he and bat who's a guy called matt banning i think in real life um did issue one and then he and bat did most of issue two and then it was like 25 inkers joe weems all these other people coming in and and he never drew another comic that i thought was worth looking at since and the latest book irritates me because i think matt banning is still inking at dc i think he, he jim Stalin on one of those Cosmic Odyssey sort of uh, Adam Strange type things. So I don't know why you wouldn't just get a decent inkering, but editors don't know what the fuck they're doing anymore anyway. So anyway, sorry, I sound like a mad old man now. No, well, it's it's frustrating. Like I have, I've been trying to get the Wildstar episode of Spawnometer together again. It's oh, been yeah. off and on for pretty much the entire year. And uh, thankfully, I finally got several episodes, I mean, issues worth of Spawn recorded with Fix-It. So I can actually, you know, I couldn't do anything when I didn't have the Spawn segment recorded 
Um, but yeah. one of the things they talk about is uh, like Jerry Ordway doesn't get a lot of work anymore or get offered a lot of work anymore. And then like Terry Austin yeah. can't find a job, period. Like there's, there's a study for him. Uh, not too long back, Scott Williams was in town for a convention. And it occurred to me that since Jim Lee's mostly been kind of inking his own stuff or really probably not, probably just shooting the pencils. I never liked Jim Lee as much as when he was being inked by other people, particularly Richard Bennett or Scott Williams. So I know that Scott yeah. Williams isn't working. Um, I'm pissed because these guys don't have the, just the money coming in because they deserve it. But also I'm pissed because the artists that they're associated with are not as good without them. Um, so but Jim, Lee, um, Jim Lee's published work is still with Scott Williams. He's just not drawing anything at the moment. Like most of the Suicide covers and stuff. Was, oh yeah, sorry. Yeah. Well, and you're mentioning too, it's like you were talking about the like the the Jim Starlin, Adam Warlock type stuff. And most of that mm. was tied into like Infinite Crisis. So that's us with our protracted timelines where you're talking about 10 to 15 years ago. <laughs> yeah. uh, you're yeah. talking about like Jim Lee on Suicide Squad. That's been about five to seven years now. Um, yeah. So it's like that was true not so long ago. But like if you look at most of the covers he's been doing for the last several years, all the, the spot images he does for DC, because he's already doing any interiors anyway. But it's mostly just it's him true. shot from the pencils. So in recent years, because that was one of the longest lived collaborations, I have to give Jim Lee credit. He continued to have an inker into the 2010s. But uh, but I don't think he's got him into the 2020s, unfortunately. Yeah, I, I'm trying to I'm trying to think of the Jim Lee stuff I've done. I mean, it, seeing it, it's still it's still Scott Williams on like, and and I don't mean to sort of dig in on it, but it's still Scott Williams on like the some of the big cover because still Scott Williams is still basically tweeting Jim Lee images. Um, at you know he's still tweeting Jim Lee images of um sort of Batman anniversary covers and Supergirl stuff and Superman stuff. So I think there's still something there, but yeah, I mean um Scott Williams has gone off on his own sort of road doing variants for Marvel and stuff and kind of fair play to him if you can't get Jim Lee and you can't get Was Potato, Scott Williams fits is <laughs> a happy medium, I guess. Yeah, I actually I I think I've seen a few of those variants he's done and I liked Williams in the rare instances where he'd actually do the full artwork. So I'd be interested in seeing more of that from him. I just I haven't not much of it's crossed my desk so far. Yeah, yeah, it's it's it's, um, it, it, it's fine, you know. Just I, I don't know. My 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 first experience with Scott Williams the penciler was um, in like a Wildstorm or Homage swimsuit, and it was a I don't know a female character, but it was like it was a spot on Jim Lee impersonation. Apart from the anatomy, it was all fucked up. So it's like slightly long neck, slightly funny arms. Everything was slightly off, but it looked like Jim Lee in every other aspect. And that was my first Scott Williams. And now everything I see from him is kind of the same. It's like um, it's like it's like looking at Jim Lee if you haven't cleaned your glasses properly. He always, like, I think the first time I saw him do an illustration on his own, he'd done either a t-shirt or a portfolio piece of The Punisher around the same time he was inking Protasio on that. And I remember okay. looking at it in, in what, it was one of the, uh, uh, it was a solicitation, like a um, like American Entertainment or one of those type of organizations. And I remember <laughs> yeah. looking at it real close and was like, that kind of looks like Will's Protasio, but not quite. And I finally saw the signature and realized that one of the names wasn't there that I was used to seeing. And yeah, <laughs> I, I, I definitely definitely agree that Williams does look like the, the sum of the two artists. Well, I don't know how well known he is for inking Portacio now, but certainly he grew up with him and they, they yeah. Yeah, a lot of his formative years were spent with Portacio and that influence has never left him. So he definitely looks like a marriage of those two artists. And I do like it when I see it, but I don't see it very often in a sequential form. It's just, like you said, the occasional pin-up cover, thing like that. Yes, yeah, Strike Force Moratoria, I think, was the only thing he ever drew or, or one of those new, new universe titles. I, I've never read, I don't think I've ever I, read 
I love issue that you did that. You did the same thing that I've done for my entire life too. It's not a new universe title, but because it came around the same time <laughs> with the same trade dress, it, in my brain it will always be a new universe title. Oh, really? so I'm glad I'm not the only one who does that. Yeah, no, absolutely. Wow. I, I thought Strike Force Moratori, DP, DP7. Yeah, because they canceled so many books at Marvel to make way for the new universe and all the books that came out around that time period was part of the 20th anniversary. They all kind of had that look to them. Like it was it was a design aesthetic <laughs> or something. So the association yeah. is just unconscious, but it's always been there. <laughs> Funny. Um, but yeah, Scott Williams, if um, if you, I don't know if you ever listened to um, the Felix comic art podcast. No, no, no. Felix, you say? Yeah, he's a guy called Felix Liu. He's, a, he's an mm. art dealer. No, I never he's heard. Oh, maybe he's a podcast. So he's, he's but, an art dealer and he's got a podcast, sometimes video cast, but he's an art rep for uh, Daniel Warren Johnson, James Harron, Paul Pope, all sorts of good people. Um, and his show is is a mixture of collectors, comic art collectors, and sometimes creators who are also collectors or just creators that he reps or whatever. But Scott Williams is a big collector and there's an episode which is an interview with Scott Williams. And I, th- I think you'd really enjoy that because it, it does go into some of the weeds of the early kind of homage studios, Jim Lee, Wars Potashia, like how that all came together, how it was like Wilson Scott and then Jim Lee joined later. And then, you know, you think Uncanny X-Men 266 or 267, like what the weird one that's a bit Wilson, a bit Jim Lee. Um, it's funny you mentioned it because I, I do think, I, I, I want to say it was one of the spot numbers, but I, I definitely took material from a podcast like that. So that's probably the one that I heard, but probably that'd be the only one because I, okay. I got it in, in vlog form. I got it off of YouTube. I don't think I got oh, it yeah, in, yeah. in YouTube, in, in podcast form. I turned it into a podcast. Uh, but yeah, I, th- I think that's where I was listening to him because Williams has gotten, Williams only been heard in a few places and that had to be one of the places I took that from then. Yeah, yeah, because he, he did that and then I think he did a um, comic art fans more recently. That's one of the things I loved about trades, which they've mostly stopped doing, is they don't really have introductions anymore for the most part, except for yeah. rare occasions. At least not from the corporate stuff. You do get that typically more often from the indie side of it because the creator wants to talk to the audience and I appreciate that but a lot of times the uh, corporate guys will not give them the space they won't allot the page count to them to do that but what's great with Marvel's and I've I've been doing this with the Epic Collections I was really resentful when they stopped putting out the Essentials the the black and white telephone book uh, collection and they moved the more expensive color ones but then I actually picked a few up and I realized they're doing stuff like putting Marvel Age articles in them and and pinups and uh, pages from Marvel Handbook and all these little extras and then it's like okay this is my DVD this is this is what I want this is, I want those extras and the, the omnibuses are really good about that so it, it made it worthwhile for me just on that alone yeah I um I was, I was never into masterworks at all and um I picked up the I picked up the Marshall and we've gone way off topic at this point um but I, I picked up the Marshall Rogers and uh, Doctor Strange's on the recommendation of a, of a of a Twitter friend and in fact he just posted some images and I was like god that looked good what's that and it was Marshall Rogers Inc by Terry Austin so I picked up those issues and loved them and much as though I love having the original newsprint versions of these things there was something about the technical aspects of those comics so lots of um, colour what do you call it Uh, where they kind of colour colour holds would be 
modern term, but where they did a serpent, where they did black line, but they made it purple. So Marshall Rogers plays an awful lot with like putting crazy stuff going on, but in colours rather than in black line. And um, I just thought it merited seeing in like the best printing possible. So I picked up those Doctor Strange um, uh, Marvel masterworks, and they're wicked. They're like full of like Roger Stern giving detailed background as to why Frank Miller didn't end up drawing it. Um, some Frank Miller designs for the characters that Gene Colan did on a fill-in issue before Marshall Rogers started. Like really, really nice. Exactly like you're describing. So you got you got all the issues, and then you got about maybe 40 pages of the back of stuff shot from original art and and Roger Stern stuff and Marvel Age type interviews and everything. Really good. Yeah, you you know it's fans putting this stuff together because they know how to get us. You know they <laughs> oh, oh you're gonna finally put the a Marvel value stamp on glossy paper. All right, you sons of bitches, you got me. You know. <laughs> Well, that, that's what it's exactly exactly what you say shows that it's not fans putting together the main the, the main stuff, you know. Um, so, like, I've got a lot of trade paperbacks that have in, introductions that ultimately would turn out to be like, oh, I see why he did the intro because he wrote that series that that guy drew before, so it was him getting a calling in a favor or whatever. Um, but nonetheless, it's like like Golden Age by James Robinson has got like a five page Howard Chaykin introduction talking about growing up reading gold golden age comics in early fandom in the 60s or whatever and it, it's just fascinating and at, at this point the trade paperbacks are just like I, I don't know it's just like incredibly um, what it was they're, utilitarian commoditary yeah. yeah they're utilitarian they're commodities they're just there <coughs> you're lucky like if, if the series had variants they might stick all four variants on one page at the back or something shit like that um, I really miss I, I, I kind of I miss looking forward to a trade now I kind of win through them and every once in a while they, they surprise me by actually being quite nice you probably are one of the only people that would appreciate this but one thing I, I've loathed about recent uh, DC collections and has literally been deal breakers for me is the logos the fact that they, they won't have the logos the classic logos on there they'll go and they'll put some shitty font for the letters JLA instead of that gorgeous <laughs> JLA logo and it's like yeah. well I'm, I'm not going to buy your $100 omnibus then because you didn't put the logo in you you know, uh, there's yeah. so much material that's out there right now that's done so anonymously where again it's like it's just easier to put a font so we're just going to put a font it's like yeah but I, I want to uh, yeah I've got a bookshelf I'm looking at my spines I want to see that logo I want to see you know that type of material and that's just not going to do it for me that's just not going to cut it but it's, it, it's thankfully Marvel did it a little bit but they seem to have gotten away from it and they're back to using recognizable trade dresses um, yeah. more often than no, not all the time but more often than DC does but DC seem to go out of their way to just put especially uh, images where the logos are integrated into the artwork and so you end up with this big gappy space where you've just got a font now drives me freaking yeah. nuts so yeah <laughs> they, little presentation things do make a difference and when you're asking people to spend gobs of money on this stuff it's like okay well I'm going to nitpick if you're going to, to do that but again when you give me all those little extras it's like okay you, you've got me I'm, I'm hooked now um, just don't mess with my logos please yeah I, I I feel like I feel like Marvel I, I feel like Marvel Marvel's attitude to new people coming to comics is like yeah we've done some we've done some films that you've really liked we've done a load of comics that you really like come and read them if you want to read them and we will present them to you in a way that that people that want to see 
them in comments will also enjoy it. Whereas DC is like, how can we frame this in a way that will attract readers from outside comics who would never read a Batman comic normally? Newsflash, they're still not going to read a Batman comic. They're not They're not interested. All you're doing is turning off the people that would buy it otherwise, you know? So it's like Mar- Marvel recognise that they've got a product that they can, that they can, that is appealing to people already. Whereas DC are constantly trying to reinvent, like every fucking five minutes, they're reinventing themselves. you got Gary Frank Power, uh, Shazam. Then you've got some Italian painter doing him with gritted teeth. Then you've got Jim Lee. And it's just like, decide what you want the character to be and then see if people want to read it, you know? Yeah, absolutely. It's, uh, as a a person who just can't quit DC, even though I don't buy the new stuff anymore, (laughs) it's just so frustrating to see them. But but again, that's that's the defining character of DC Comics since probably the 60s is always feeling the the middle child syndrome, just always feeling like, how am I going to make, how am I going to win people over? You know, what, you know, I don't have any confidence in my own stuff. I want to be as much like my older brother as possible or, or the cool younger brother or whatever it is that they're doing. They're constantly uh, unwilling to be what they are and just, you know, do the be the best DC. So, yeah, completely. Yeah, that. yeah. Maybe, maybe that's a kind of a, like a, much as I'm loathe to say it, like is a, a legacy of Stan Lee, mm-hmm. you know, Stan Lee going out to university campuses and, and talking up, talking up Marvel comics um, that, you know, he had obviously some investment in um, versus versus DC constantly trying to apologize for 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 I don't know stuff that the authority comics authority code didn't like in the 1950s <laughs> <laughs> or, or just constantly say like what they've done you know uh like you said first they were architects of the comics code authority so they, they yes. basically created this uh anti-creative authoritarian group for the comics the they they, they <laughs> were yeah they they were the fascists of the comic book industry um and then afterwards it's them constantly apologizing for producing a bunch of stories for young children. It's like, I'm so sorry that we actually made like little kitty stuff and that we didn't target kids like Marvel did. We, we, we'll, we'll do everything we can to catch up. We'll murder, we'll rape, we'll do whatever you want us to do to show that we can mm. be grown up too just like Marvel and just overcompensating constantly. Yeah, I mean, I mean, my 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 current comics experience is pretty similar to my 90s comics experience. I, I am just sort of sifting through trying to find diamonds, you know, um, the, the current detective run by a slightly reinvented Raphael Bokerki I quite like Ram V who I've not read before but I'm quite enjoying quite enjoying that and I've got a couple of these other things but you look at how many comics are published and then you look at how many you're getting like I'm like hey what a good week I got three comics this week it's <laughs> like <laughs> so out of the how many published a month mm-hmm. um, and yeah I mean no interest in continuity or or I, I, I'm just perfectly happy if someone's creating a little a little um, run on something that doesn't cross over with anything and, and as soon as it does cross over that's pretty much my jumping off point mm-hmm. well yeah it's like I was I had some interest in checking out the current run of Nightwing um, but I didn't catch the first volume and then the second volume was nothing but tie-ins to other Batman stuff so it's like yeah. well I, I don't I, you know even if I like the first volume I would have to skip the second volume because of all that crap so why am I even going to try um, yeah I, I definitely feel that but it, yeah I've definitely become you know I, I remember uh, selling comics in the middle age guys who were mostly reading you know off the beaten trail type of stuff or legacy stuff or out of continuity stuff and I, I definitely grew up to become that guy
guy. I do the same stuff. It's like, now I'm the guy who's like, oh, please give me the hardcover collection of uh, short Wonder Woman stories with the uh, uh, cool textured cover and stuff, you know? I, I think uh, uh, Superman uh, Red and Blue is being solicited this month. That's definitely the kind of thing I'm going to want to pick up if I'm going to buy something from the ma- the majors. Um, yeah. The only thing that I've well, bought well, recently that's actually in continuity, and I haven't started reading it yet, but the uh, Philip Kennedy Johnson uh, War World stuff in Action Comics. Yeah. Uh, because of my Mongol, uh, but not just that. Also, I what I've read of his stuff has been pretty good. He seems like to be one of the up and coming guys that people like. You mentioned Ram V earlier. I read some of his Justly Dark and was surprised, given how uh, how much uh, I don't want to read a book like that. But I really enjoyed what I read of his. And he, yeah. If you're going to do dark horror sorcery Justice League, he seemed to do a really good job of pulling it off. And in particular, how he had Wonder Woman within that context, which is not something I would have expected to be receptive to but yeah. given her mythological background and some of the darker elements in the mythology it, it he managed to make it work and it's like wow okay this is the kind of writing that will get me to try stuff in continuity again so there, there are always those guys where they're, they're just a cut above and it's like okay this guy I'll make an exception for this guy so and yeah. Ramsey would be one of those guys and it, it, it's I mean it's I don't know about I don't know about you but I mean I'm I'm so happy that there's still these people who can drag me in a little bit you know mm-hmm. like Tom, Tom King I'm hot and cold with yeah um, I, I'm a little over him right now because of the human target stuff is really pissing me off and some of the other stuff he's done recently pissed me off what as like but an then, old JLA fan or yeah yeah but then Danger Street where he's taking all the uh, first issue special characters and doing something interesting with those it's like uh, okay you might have me on that one I'm actually yeah, but you, you say that but there's a bloke 15 years older than you saying I was fine with him until he started fucking with the first issue special characters because <laughs> that was <laughs> Right. <laughs> because of that long um, legacy of Lady Cop. <laughs> exactly, exactly. You, c- you can't mess with that origin. That, that's gold. Right. Um, <laughs> but that's the Supergirl mini he did was, was it wasn't flawless. It sort of stumbled a little bit at the end for me, but it was beautiful and really, really well done. Um, Which is hilarious because I, I know Dr. Ange loves Supergirl and he did not love that miniseries. So he's the oh, guy yeah. you just talked about on that particular, you're fucking with my character. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, going back to the aliens thing, you know, I'm I'm quite happy to come in and take something at face value. Like, mm. if you ask me what, like, I would have to work quite hard to go through all the Batman comics I've read and work out which ones I consider to be canon. Um, and it might not go much further than, like, Batman Year One and a couple of Legends of the Dark Knight minis or something. Um, but for the, for the most part, I just don't care about continuity. I, I care when um, I care when a character is completely fucked with. And, that, and it happens from time to time. I, I'm, I'm not super... Um, I'm not super judgy. How can I put it? I'm not super analytical in the sense that I'm going to get too strong up on the character's motivations compared to their motivations three years ago or something. But every once in a while, I will get kicked kicked hard out of something because of some some ridiculous turn that a writer comes up with. Um, and I can imagine Supergirl is nobody's Supergirl. It's, it's his own thing mm-hmm. and could, could have, should have been published as a an image series, mm-hmm. Ultra Girl, <laughs> and, and not offended anyone, you know? Um Apart from the half a dozen people saying, "Oh, this should have been a Supergirl series," <laughs> um, but it, well, it's, it's like the right, thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I always complained throughout the '90s that the best Captain Marvel stories were all being told at other companies. You know, everybody yeah. was doing a better <laughs> Captain Shazam, Captain Marvel than the actual Captain Marvel. Um, so yeah, I, I can totally get that too. Yeah, I mean, yeah, Supergirl. I mean, I don't know, um, I don't know what that guy's go-to Supergirl is, but what's a go-to Supergirl? Go-to Supergirl, anyway. 
anyway. You know, the Peter David, Peter David, Gary Frank, or the Silver Age, or the Golden, like right, right. It, it is it's difficult. Never the same. Yeah, it, it's it, it, honestly to some degree, uh, Supergirl is the archetypical DC character because she's constantly being reinvented. It's like, well, do you like me now? <laughs> do you like me now? Do you like me now? You know. So yeah, yeah. I completely get get where you're coming from on that one. Yeah, her most her most famous cover. She's dead on it and being held by Superman. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh, you're just twisting the knife on Ange now. <laughs> um, but 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 yeah. I mean, I, I'm, I'm I'm reading a bit, um, and I, I picked up this week. I picked up Batman versus Robin, which is um, Mark Wade and mm. Mahmoud Azra, who did Conan actually. Yeah. Um, and I presume that and Dynamo Five. Yeah, yeah. He he's um he's all right. But sort of going back to the Conan show that you just did the other day, I I thought he's I thought the twelve issue art with Jason Aaron sort of played out really nicely, mm-hmm. um, and then the King Conan mini as well. I thought was pretty pretty great. Um, so I don't know if you've got around to reading them since the podcast. But no, I, I, I recommend I, them. It's funny because it, it drives me nuts when we do ones with that kind of scope because there's always stuff that gets missed, and so I'm always sitting back going, "Oh, I completely forgot about Raphael Kayanen's <laughs> run on Conan the Adventurer and, and stuff like that." Yeah. But I, more, modern Marvel stuff, I'm, I almost completely avoid. I it just because okay. I, I've been divorced from the Marvel universe since the early '90s, uh, with with a few exceptions, like I kept up with Peter David's Hulk for uh, until near the end. Um, but I, I was successfully able to like extricate myself from Marvel, probably because I was such an X Men guy that once I'd lost interest in the X Men, the greater Marvel universe, I, I had an easy time. Yeah. You know, uh, whereas DC just got their hooks into me so good, and there's so much about how that universe was structured after uh, Crisis that you know that it, it it just I I can't let it go. It's it, there's always going to be those elements. Um, you were talking about like with artists. I'm I've always been more, more writer first and then artist guy. Sure. But every team I see Dan Mora draw um, a Dick Grayson as Robin in the World's Finest series. I don't know yeah. if that trade's been solicited yet, but I'm going to buy it just because I love how he draws <laughs> that character. You know, and I, and I like Mark Wade too. Don't get me wrong, but that's the that's what's roping me in. It's like I, I just want to watch him draw Dick Grayson for pages and pages and figure out someone who's finally figured out how to do the Robin costume where it's still true to the uh, uh, the original suit, but clearly an update and and it isn't just you know Tim Drake suit, which was great, but Tim Drake has yeah. a suit and I like seeing Dick in a suit that actually works that's flattering and, and makes use of the colors and makes use of the Robin Hood motif and it's like that's a book I'm buying for the artwork whenever it comes out or you know I'm driving that so I, I'm definitely yeah. can be roped in by the artist too I, I was so irritated because my comic box came really late this month and I thought well surely I'm going to get the Alex Ross Fantastic Four then if I had to wait for so long and then it wasn't in there in the UK yet yeah and I had, all, I had all these great books and it's like but I didn't get the one I wanted I didn't get my <laughs> that's the one I wanted to see so yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's so, yeah I, I definitely have the artists that will grab me sometimes too and they'll they'll be the deal maker for me it's just that it's usually going to be a guy like Dan Moore is one of those few guys that like is definitely clearly a modern artist who's who's not from the 90s down that it's like man that guy just knows how to draw these DC characters though and then um, he just hasn't drawn a lot that was in my wheelhouse and of interest to me and then okay he's drawing Dick Grayson well now I'm going to go check it out where you're talking about Batman versus Robin well that's um um what's his face um uh, yeah. Damien and it's like well, okay well you've already lost it because it got Damien in it <laughs> you know I'm just I, it doesn't matter he could be drawn by Paul Galassi or Steve Lytle could come back from the dead and draw it and I still probably wouldn't pick that up <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm a, again, I, I'm not a, I'm not a Robin aficionado to the mm. point that I, ha, I have that kind of that kind of preference. I, I, I enjoy, I enjoy a bit of Dick Grayson in um, sort of throwback stories. Never read the Wolfman Perez Titans, mm. for example. Um, and then, it's and then with Damien, it came up from the Morrison stuff. So it's like everybody um, read X Men at some point. Yeah, but it's like if you were around for Wolfman Perez, everybody read it in that time period. But then, then it's like it's almost like been lost to time. It's like people who came later just never read it and have never gone back to it. And frankly, yeah. it doesn't hold up that great if you do go back to it. So <laughs> it's like it's so important to people who read it when it was coming out. And it's like it just doesn't have the the generational impact that something like X Men ended up having because they were able to yeah. keep that momentum where Titans just didn't just blew it basically. And and going back to like X Men, what was your um, like like my X Men journey was um, starting at Jim Lee mm-hmm. working back about a hundred and so issues mm-hmm. of Uncanny and then I stuck with it through Lobdale and Echezia and then I got to obviously got to Morrison which which I which I loved the Joe Casey stuff less so and then I sort of struggled a little bit I read a bit of um, the Bacallo the, the Mike Carey stuff was mm-hmm. surprisingly good but I was still struggling with the fact that it was tying into other stuff so reading two out of four parts of a story got a bit tedious mm-hmm. and then that was me like done yep. you know I was finished um and so, so now when like House of X, Powers of X, Powers of Ten, oh, whatever yeah. it is, um, have you read it? Nope, nope. Uh, again, getting back to the weird lettering kink of mine. Uh, <laughs> okay. When Hickman came in, and decided everything had to be uh, digital, like like looking like a digital clock. All the the fonts had to be looking like digital. <laughs> I, I was just like, nope, 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 nope. But no, I, I my there was never any danger of me reading that stuff because uh, for me, when I was starting to read the X Men comic books, was um, um, uh, tail end of Cockrum and uh, Paul Smith yeah. and, and, you know was, was the stuff that was out there and I reached back for John <coughs> Byrne and then thanks to X-Men Classic I reached all the way back to the early Cockrum stuff and and sort of I have a gap period where the second round of Cockrum I just didn't have a lot of interest in and didn't read a lot of that stuff yeah. but skipping through that basically from all new X-Men through until a year or two after the a- image exodus and then that was the end of it for me I, my uh, break point you was Fatal Attraction Oh, fail uh, attractions. attractions, yeah. It's it, they, when I, they, it was just around that time where, like, okay, X Force was one of the ones I still liked because I was I thought Fabian Eciaza was one of the better writers, and I loved Greg Capullo's artwork when he had that more Michael Golden quality to it. Oh, it was and, ama- amazing that period. Of yeah, <laughs> and his last period was uh, his last issue was X Force number twenty five, so that was an easy drop. I never liked the Kubert boys on X Men, so I had already dropped that several months prior to that issue. Um, Uncanny. I think was it Tom Rainey who did the tie-in to Fail Attractions? Anyway, I, I liked the Scott Lovedell stuff okay. And no, it was um, John Romita Jr., Jay Lee. Oh yeah, John Romita Jr. had come back. And it yeah, was that's funny. Yeah, that was weird yeah. because obviously he he was the odd man out in that group. And as much as <laughs> yeah. I liked John Romita Jr., I just wasn't enjoying the stories by the time because he you had that period where Brandon Peterson was drawing Uncanny, and I just loathed his artwork at that time. <laughs> yeah, I, just, I could ter- not stand terrible. it. And the stories seemed to like kind of fall off. Off around to 90 something whatever they had Tom Rainey do it for a little bit and then after he had left and Portacio had left um, uh, they they did uh, the one the um, the one with Strife I can't remember the name of it now yeah Executioner's Song Executioner's Song yeah and so that was me sort of going okay this is I'm about done with this and so Fatal Attractions just seemed like the natural jumping off points and so many of the people I liked were leaving John Romero Jr. was the only one coming back but because I didn't enjoy the stories anymore I, I just left and with the exception of coming back for when 
Claremont came back briefly with Lanil Francis Yu late in the decade, I just successfully yeah. was able to, to cold turkey on that. You know, there's like I've said, there's some stuff that I had to go back over and over again and still has a bit of a pull for me. But for some reason, I was just, I'd read so many X-Men comic books for so many years and I read so much material that I did not enjoy following, really starting with X-Men number one because I was disappointed when I bought that and it's like, eh, I mean, it looks good, but I don't really like the story. And then I, I bought it for almost two years after not liking that story and not really liking any of the stories from that volume. Then they yeah. just like slowly eroded my affection and recognized that the things I loved about X-Men, like the fact that the lineups were always changing and there were always com people coming in and going out. And now you got this group that's just static for like five years straight because they're the ones that I think the cartoon did it, no? They yeah. just locked into that Jim Lee lineup. Yeah, exactly. And so it just, I, it, it, I realized, okay, the thing that made me keep buying this book is gone now, which was Claremont, which is funny too, because I was sick of Claremont until Jim Lee came on. You know, all that, the, <laughs> the tail end of Mark Silvestri and then all the fill-in guys when they were due bi-weekly in the summer and stuff. Yeah, I, 250, I, 260. Yeah, I, did, yeah. I wasn't into, and again, sorry, Leonardo was doing a lot of those fill-ins too. Um, <laughs> and then I got back into it because of the Jim Lee material. And then it's like, okay, well, you know, that that was like this last hurrah. That was a, a great send-off. You know, it's time for me to go to. I, I lost you. I think you got muted. Yeah. Okay. Um, that run of Uncanny you're talking about, there's a, a run of comic, a run of Uncanny X-Men from the back end of like Uncanny, um, Uncanny 290 through to about, uh, until about Joe Madrera starts to be okay. honest. Okay. Which where, was great too. I, I loved looking at that. So I just didn't feel compelled to read it, but I loved looking at it. No, I mean, the, the writing's pretty terrible, but I mean, he, he sells it well. But that run of comics from like that, that terrible wheels cover with like Storm looking up at the sky, getting rained on, um, through to like Brandon Peterson there's a cover where it's got like Professor X standing over himself under a tree um, mm -hmm. <laughs> there's just there's a run of covers that gives me the opposite of like a Proustian buzz like I see it <laughs> and it sort of it sort of makes my stomach sink a little bit at having ever read them <laughs> right like you're embarrassed for having bought them and being like oh this is yeah. a thing I want to read yeah <laughs> Yeah, been there. The, the fact that the fact that like Marvel hasn't retconned them the, the way they did like the reprint, like get John Byrne to come and write a ten issue story that fills in that gap or something. It's so fucking bad. <laughs> Brandon Peterson was just he, he he actually got okay afterwards. Oh, I, I really enjoy his work today, and and I have enjoyed it since he started. He, what was it? Uh, what was what was the book that he started drawing in his more current style? Um, there, there was a, it was it was like a Top Cow book, wasn't yeah, it? it was yeah, yeah, like I think a, you're right. Oh, well, yeah, because when he started on. Codename Strike File. He was still doing his crappy want to be Jim Lee, yeah. yeah. And then uh, by the time he did Witchblade Spawn, Medieval Spawn Witchblade, yes. that yeah. was really good looking stuff. And I've enjoyed his stuff since then. He's not remotely prolific, uh, it, but it was like yeah. for instance, that was the only good thing about the J. Michael Straczynski Doctor Strange uh, wannabe reboot was it looked great. It just read for shit. Yeah, yeah. And that that Medieval Spawn Witchblade that was like he did like two and a, two and a bit issues of that, and the rest of them were like top cow people. It was, oh, it was a real. Remember. I bought, yeah, I bought it. If, I don't remember if he. So you, got that, you got that lovely cover. You got a great Aaron Weisenfeld strip of like a pinup of Spawn and Witchblade versus a giant wooden robot thing. Um, but my main memory of it is, yeah, basically by issue three, it's it's drawn by I don't know Anthony Wynn and inked by twenty five people or something oh, like. Oh Jesus! He, yeah, he, he jumped off for the third issue, so yeah. I, I don't own it because it, it's too painful when that uh, happens. <laughs> I, I I read each of those issues as they came out. The one time put them in a box and I guess probably sold them at some point because I don't have them in my possession anymore but yeah well, I, surely they're going to come up in your reread oh eventually point. yeah but it's just, you're just like oh great I get to look forward to Anthony Wynn <laughs> 
<laughs> and again, this is what's so great about uh, uh, talking with somebody like you. It's like you've you've dropped a Aaron Weisenfeld reference twice now. What are the fucking events? <laughs> you know, it's like okay, well I know I'm, I'm dealing with a uh, contemporary for certain. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, he's just he, yeah, he he's just brilliant. Like watching that like watching that guy was like watching a fucking ro- the, Roman candle. Yeah, is he the one who did the Death Blow Wolverine two part miniseries? Yeah, so yeah. so he did he did Team Seven and like that Team Seven. Um, if you like Team Seven, he goes from doing that te- like kinetic Jim Lee. So he was ex of continuity along with Richard Bennett, and then did Team Seven after doing a couple of issues of Cable and an X Men annual. And then on Team Seven, he actually had decent colors, and he was inked by Scott Williams and JD, who was like Scott Williams's protege or whatever. So it looked okay, but in four issues, he grew so much. And then he did the two issue Deathlow Wolverine. He did a few pages on Alan Moore Wildcats. He did um, he did a Batman Black and White painted story with Joe Kelly and then fucked off and left us. You know? And it was just like, oh my God, what happened there? It was like more than Travis Charis did. You're right. I, yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking of when you're talking about that is one of these guys who just like had this extraordinary evolution and then just <laughs> fucking vanishes. Yeah. Yeah. And what's, and then, what's so sad about Travis Charis too, or, or I think it's actually like something like Charvet or something. Yeah, I, I think it's Charvet. Yeah. 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 Um, but somebody told me and then I was like, okay, I got to remember that and then I've completely forgotten what they told me was the actual pronunciation. Uh, I'm saying Charest until at least we know what we're talking about. Sinkovich, Sinkovich, who cares? But as I, I recognize that on a technical level, he's a better artist now, but his current work in no way interests me. It just looks like another one of these digital painter guys and it just doesn't stand out in any way to me where there was a time where it's just like, wow, this guy's got some of the best stuff of Kevin Nolan mixed with Jim Lee mixed with Mike Mignola and I love all this. And now it's just like, I, I, I probably couldn't pick him out of a lineup the way he draws now or paints or whatever he's doing what technique he's using yeah yeah I mean the I've seen a few pages I think I tweeted a few pages from um, from his because he's got a Mark Millar project coming up mm. and um, and there, there was a bit there was a bit so after he did Wildcats 25 he disappeared for a few issues and then came back doing a few pages here and there on Wildcats and those Wildcats pages were just breathtaking and I don't know if you remember there was like a, a double page spread with like an aeroplane in a yeah. hangar and it was just an aeroplane but he drew it so well it was mm-hmm. amazing and then Wildcats X-Men Golden Age and mm-hmm. the, the, the the Wildcats series afterwards all great but you could see like him trailing off in terms of um, in terms of input and then um, yeah the current stuff like his covers that he's doing all, he's, he's obviously all digital at this point and he's found a, he's found a method that maybe makes him more productive so so I don't know I don't know about you like okay here's a comparison for you would you want red nails once in a lifetime or no red nails and a load of Archer and Armstrong by mm. Barry Windsor Smith mm. you know and the answer is if, if 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 what you've got to take is red nails and then he does some shit Archer and Armstrong you'll live with it right and that's what yeah. we got with Travis well the the ideal route is you get red nails he disappears for the better part of a decade and he comes back and he's doing Weapon X monster. and, and yeah, uh, the yeah. Uncanny X-Men and all that kind of yeah monster um, you want to see the culmination of that and and the, the culmination should be him excelling and becoming a, a, an all-timer and yeah. instead he just vanishes and he comes back and he becomes another anonymous drone you know doing variant covers and shit that's not yeah. the arc you want to have for your career you're better off being Aaron Weisenfeld where you leave us tantalized like wow I wonder what happened to that guy because I don't know <laughs> do you know what became of him I, I remember yeah, that he had that really a, great European influence style on those two issues and everybody was praising it and then he just gone no he, he's a um, he's a proper painter he, uh, he's a he actually follows he follows me on, on Twitter and I feel slightly self-conscious whenever mm-hmm. I 
tweet something about his great comics because right. I feel like he's somewhere like with his toes curling in a, in a room <laughs> deciding Probably. whether to unfollow me or not um, but he because he, he, he did um he did covers you know that Kelly Jones Steve Seagull series Crusades mm-hmm. he did the last eight issue of covers for that um, and that was like the style that he landed on and then went off to do fine art um, that was yeah, a cliffhanger just, book right um, no it was Vertigo it was, um, it was Vertigo okay yeah it was uh, it was Kelly Jones on the art so mm-hmm. uh, um, it was Kelly Jones I can't remember who was inking it but it, I don't think it was great it was like mm-hmm. a night trapped in modern times mm-hmm. um, but but yeah you made me laugh earlier talking about Barry Windsor Smith making everyone look sleepy and um, and it, it made me think of a guy I used to work with in, in, in Gosh and he said that Mark Texera everyone he draws looks like cats <laughs> and I was like what? and I can't get away from it it's like <laughs> I can't <laughs> remove that memory. Every time I see Mark Tix here, I'm like, yeah, they do look a bit like They do cats. look a bit like cats, it's true, yeah. <laughs> Everybody's got that evil, gigantic grin. You know, they're all little Cheshire people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, 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 but I, I love Tex here. He's one of my favorites. He isn't. He doesn't quite get where he used to be, unfortunately, anymore. But but I still love the stuff. But yeah, you're. but they also totally look like cats. Did, did you see the, um, he did a, um, you're assuming it's um, Jonah Hex yeah, workshop. I, I didn't. I didn't pick that one up, but I, I've, I remember seeing him doing the cover i wasn't sure if he did the interiors on that but i didn't i didn't put the money down on it how did that turn out yeah no it's fine i mean like like most of those things like this is the problem that i have with a lot of the comics i buy nowadays is that i read them once and then i can pretty much tell straight away that i'm never going to be interested in reading them again so if they're marvel i redeem the code so i've got them digitally at least but most of the stuff i buy i read once and then and then and then sell on um but there was a the the batman elmer fudd was great um there was a really nice uh, Kelly Jones um, Wiley Coyote Martian Man no Lobo Wiley Coyote um, which was like mental but gorgeous it was Bill Morrison writing and Kelly Jones on the art um, and then the Tex Era one when I think it was written by Jimmy Palmiotti or something so it's fine you know mm-hmm. I, of course you know being uh, a mental I did pick up the Martian Manhunter Marvel the Martian one but I still haven't gotten around to reading it so <laughs> I ought to but it's one of those things where after doing daily blogging on Marshman Hunter for all those years it's really hard to like oh I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to read this I'm going to do write up a synopsis of it it's like it's, and I can't just read it to just read it you know I can't just read it for yeah. the pure pleasure of the act of reading it has to be for something so uh, I, I do have that one but I, I never did anything with it <laughs> It looks I, fun. I, I, I want to check out. I want to check out more of Mark Russell's stuff. I hear so many good things about him, and he, and really he did good. one of those. So yeah, I, I need to check his stuff out. What, what have you read of his? Um, I read I read the Flintstones, okay. uh, which was I think the first thing that he did. Um, I read one of those crossovers he did, the DC Warner ones, and then I just read that Superman thing we've all read. Mm. Um, oh and that God, was, that yeah, was, that was worth the hype. That was really yeah. Good. I, I'm I'm trading waiting on that one, but it's it's hard because there's such thick volumes and I know they they're not coming out on, on a routine basis it's like why don't I just go buy the individual ones you know because it looks so in my wheelhouse that looks so great yeah I hadn't even picked up on the on the because um, I wasn't interested in it before it came out and then as it was as it was coming out it was like it's like 80 pages of Michael read for for ten dollars or something so nine pound and it's Mark Russell who I really like so it seemed like a no-brainer by the time it came out but Michael Red's not someone who he doesn't excite me I, I've got comics by him that I 
love, like the early madmans and things, but he's not someone who excites me to the point that I see something solicited and jump up and down. But by the time this came out, it had sort of bubbled under to the point where it's like, I buy so few comics, fuck it, I'll just pick it up. And I really liked him. Yeah, I, I love Mike Allred's art style, but he's one of those guys, like you're talking about how, uh, uh, hold on one second. Sorry, uh, I didn't want to uh, make noise. Um, yeah. He's one that, uh, like you, you talked about Chuck Dixon being a guy who you like if he's on got the right Dependent. artist. Yeah. And I, I think that Chuck Dixon is a great writer on certain characters, and ideally he's always a great artist, but usually he works with his buddies, and I don't like most of his buddies. So that's my <laughs> issue with him. One of my guys is Ron Mars, where on his own, I, I could give a shit about Ron Mars. But he's one of these guys who is respectful enough continuity that if he would just write a character I love, regardless of the art, as long as the art's not act- actively off-putting, I would I would buy Mark Ron Mars' stuff because he's not going to piss me off. He's good enough, and yeah. with the character I love, good enough was good enough for a long time there. Um, so with Mike Allred, my thing is I really like his artwork, but I'm not going to buy it if it's a character that I don't have an interest in. And I lost sure. interest in Madman because I I, I I like his writing okay, but it, it's not in, the way he was writing the book wasn't to my taste in that time period. Maybe I would like it sure. if I revisited it. But I I would enjoy seeing him on stuff it, like he did a. Doctor Strange miniseries with Dead Girl a while back and I enjoyed picking that yeah. up because I like Doctor Strange <laughs> but when you're going to have a long run on Silver Surfer I could give a shit about Silver Surfer so it, it doesn't matter no, how yeah. praised it is I'm just not going to be there for it but with Superman I and it's not like I have like a passion for Silver Age Superman stories what I have a passion about is continuity and that Superman in that time period was the one of the most popular characters published and and you know far and away the, the top superhero in that time period and then when John Byrne decided that that stuff was corny and we're not going to do anything with it anymore all that stuff got abandoned and I, for mm. me that's an essential part of Superman when I was growing up and they would show Superman's origin you'd have the guy with the green headband on and stuff you know that, that that's yeah. even though I didn't read the Silver Age comic books that the iconography was still a part of my upbringing and that that lore I know impacted on my initial interpretation of who Superman was and when they took all that stuff away when they took away a lot of that sci-fi stuff and the science fantasy stuff I don't feel like the character that was left had the, the robust qualities of a Superman it just felt like this diminished marvelized version the character yeah and so when like an ed mcginnis even though jeff Loeb, who i can't stand but it, when jeff Loeb <laughs> decided he's gonna bring in that silver age stuff and ed mcginnis is drawing it it's like yes give me that and seeing mike already do that silver age stuff yes give me that you know w- take my money so uh you know it, 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 it you chalk it to fetishization for me i think it's just remembering that that lore was there remembering that the full mythology of superman should be accessible to modern creators and seeing that it gives me hope that okay maybe one of these days we can have the full Superman, the full Superman experience, and not just this guy whose cape has to get torn and has to sweat and, you know, <laughs> that kind of yeah. thing. I get, I get tired. Like, like, there's a lot of people who tell me about, oh, you got to watch Superman and Lois. And it's like, I want to see him hanging out on a farm and all this domestic stuff, and his kids are probably the stars of the show and shit. It's like, no. Yeah. I want to see well, Superman. Well, yeah, the, the, the best, like, like for me, I, I'm, not, I'm, not, uh, I'm not a mad Superman guy at all. But for me, my entry point to Superman, I mean, obviously, I read Whatever Happens to the Man of Tomorrow. I read what you get from Man of I read the animal stuff basically um, but I never read any well firstly back issues of Superman and Batman were never were never big in the UK 
um, you, you couldn't easily come across. But once the, once the film of Batman came out, all the back issues dried up. Um, and Superman, I, I don't know if the interest wasn't there or if people weren't letting them go, but they were just never around. So it wasn't really an option for me um, to pick up any given run. And then nobody could ever say, oh, you know what you want to get? It's Superman 745. To you know, There was no frame of reference like it was with Batman of like, Batman Year One, followed by Grant and Brave followed by, you know, it's just like, yeah, Kurt Swan and loads of people that drew like him for a hundred years. Um, so I never read any old Superman. There were no collections. And then Mr. Majestic by Joe Casey. And mm. That was like, oh, well, fucking hell, this is really good, you know? Um, Another instance of everybody doing a version of the Silver Age Superman, Supreme, <laughs> by Alan Moore, another example, where, yeah. oh, that's that's how you could do good Superman stories. We won't, we, we're, we're not going to do those. Though. <laughs> we're going to do our tepid yeah. bullshit by comics by committee bullshit. Yeah, that, 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 that I, I mean, I, I don't know what Brian Hoglin's contribution to that was because he's co-writer with Joe Casey but the, that idea of like so Superman there's something coming it's going to be here in about 25 years so that's why you're not getting involved in Vietnam and that's why you're not getting involved in the Gulf you know like taking Superman off the table because he's busy building rings around Uranus instead of Saturn and stuff I mean just like massive level sci-fi mm-hmm. superhero stuff that, that probably couldn't be done in really in a regular ongoing continuity yeah. But, that is the real problem is that the, the rest of the DC universe doesn't work if Superman's in it. So I, I get it. I get the rationale. I just, but you're not really that super then, are you? <laughs> that's the, that's the, like, okay, yeah, you work. You can hang out with Wonder Woman and Batman now, but what are you bringing to the table besides the iconography? You know, that's that's the issue I have with it. Yeah. And, and, and then you have your, so, so Alan Moore does it well. Alan Moore kind of seems to accidentally wander in and almost ruin characters by nailing them so much that nobody else can ever really add anything to them Mark Miller tries to do the same thing like Mark Miller there's a couple of moments in that Wolverine miniseries that made me just want to punch him in the in the face hard mm-hmm. um, What one is the thing of like that, that Mr. Fantastic he makes that terrible stretching noise when he stretches and Johnny Storm he smells like burning hair or whatever and he's just like oh fuck off and then, <laughs> yeah, and, then, and then he has a thing later on where like between issue 9 and 10 or something he, he says he says something like Wolverine has killed 9 thousand ninjas and you're just like really off panel you know and is that is that what Wolverine does now he kills nine thousand nine thousand really <laughs> um, and, and it's just like Miller trying to up up, up. He's, mm-hmm. I, I think he's gone on to be a better writer than he was at the time when he was most popular um but but yeah he 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 comes in and tries to do those those moments and and Grant Morrison does the op Grant Morrison does the thing where he 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 does like the the Alan Moore thing of having like one tiny line be a thing that nails a character forever and Grant Morrison's pretty good at doing similar type stuff mm-hmm. and and Mark Miller feels like feels like I can do that I can do that I can do that and um and just doesn't like yeah just constantly goes through sort of fucking characters up a bit mm-hmm. um, but but that might just be me <laughs> no no I, I think you 100% nailed it I think that you you read something that Alan Moore writes like sometimes it's even an offhand thing and you he, he makes you want to explore he makes you want to read more spend more time with his character where um, I think Miller's like a, a bad Tinder day or something where it's like you after about five <laughs> ten minutes you don't want to have anything to do with this character that he's writing you know can I can, how, yeah. how quickly can I get out of this fucking thing you know uh, um, so yeah and you, again the, the try hard he's just trying so hard to be Pat Mills and he's yeah. not Alan Moore he's not Pat Mills he's not Grant Morrison he can be okay when he's doing himself but himself wasn't commercial because if you, if you look at stuff like when he did the Superman uh, Adventures book yeah. I know a lot of people love that stuff 
stuff. And when he's working on a character that he has genuine affection for, and that's he can't bring himself, is, yeah. yeah, when he can't bring himself to fuck it up, that's the the, the Miller I like. Uh, like he did the uh, Legacy, uh, the Jupiter's Circle miniseries with Wilfredo uh, Torres. Yeah, and he was basically again doing something similar to what James Robinson was doing with Starman. And it's like, why don't we see that guy more often? I like what you're doing here. I like these stories you're telling. You're you're telling more adult, sophisticated stuff with this these childhood archetype. But it's it's good. It's not just like you know uh, uh, making everything. He he's just like a coke and whores kind of writer when he's trying to be commercial. Mm. And my t- appetite for coke and whores is pretty limited especially at this point in my life but he thinks that that's the thing that he's, got, he's got that lad mad mentality he thinks that's what people want and he's not wrong because that's what was commercial that thing. is what they want um, <laughs> yeah. but you know it, again it, 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 it has a limited appeal and uh, obviously he isn't the light that he used to be because I, I think the, the, the zeitgeist has just kind of moved on from that and he's not and he doesn't know how to be another thing a lot of the time so now he is just well, the poor man's third rate Grant Morrison you know well I, I think I think with him I don't read everything that he writes but there was a point um, and I think it was maybe MPH that he did with Duncan Fogredo mm-hmm. um, who like not name dropping but he's a mate of mine mm-hmm. cool. um, and it, but he's someone who he's someone who can act you know um, not not from panel to panel but within a panel so he's not reliant on action and reaction to create an emotion he can actually do stuff in a panel on its own you know and um, MPH had a surprising amount of heart to it and I don't know if it's like off the back of Millar's kind of brush with death that he had like he, he was really ill for a while mm. and I think yeah. MPH might have been one of the first things that came out of the back of that but since then he's done quite a good Reborn that he did with Capullo was really good mm. um, and Magic Order was really good mm. and the, the one that he did with Goran Parlov about like the aging Flash Gordon like like almost like Flash Gordon meets Unforgiven would probably yeah, so, be so like Starlight or something I think Starlight there you go those were all um, like some surprisingly strong character pieces mm. that didn't have the old Miller kind of um, loaded magazine sort of flair to them. So mm-hmm. if you if, if you come across them in a library or cheap or something, I'd, I'd recommend them. But Re- Reborn, like Reborn for me is quite painful because all the work that Capullo's, I, I really like Capullo mm-hmm. and all the work that he's done since he's come back has been with Scott Snyder, whose work I don't get on with. Mm-hmm. And then he, did, he does this Reborn miniseries, which is really nice, and then fucks off back to Snyder again. Like, <laughs> <laughs> you, dude, one thing you got to give Capullo credit for, though, he is loyal. When he works with you, when he has an artistic collaboration with you, it's going to last for years and years. It seems like. Yeah. Did, did you did you listen to um, the Kevin Kevin Smith, who I don't have much time for, but he's um, Fat Man on Batman podcast. He did like it was two episodes that were Greg Capullo, mm-hmm. and from your perspective, i.e., from from our perspective, mm-hmm. they're fucking fascinating. Mm-hmm. Really, really good. Cool. Um, and it, it, it's Capullo talking about getting into comics, about Larry Hammer. I think I think it was Larry Hammer sort of trying to fuck him over on something. Mm-hmm. And then a couple of years later, because of the image exodus, he's sitting at the big boys table at the X-Men convention or at the X-Men mm-hmm. power meeting or whatever. And he's like, hey, Larry, look, it's me. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and this kind of stuff. Not to be funny, but... <laughs> <laughs> but he goes on to talk about um, how like he, he hit a bad time with like drink and maybe drugs mm-hmm. and how um, McFarlane was basically throwing him a bone mm-hmm. and just giving him like a lifeline doing like uh, production designs and stuff. like when he couldn't turn in a, a monthly comic oh, McFarlane okay. was 
that's interesting. I, I did not know one. that. I know because he'd done like I know he left to do like the Creech, and then he had those yeah. wilderness years where I didn't know what he was doing, and I've never researched it, so it didn't occur to me. Oh, it, he, there was some personal problems stuff there. Okay, now I yeah. Okay, that you, you sorry. It's just like when you mentioned that, it's just like a light bulb was like, so oh, you just answered a question I didn't know that I I wanted to ask. So I was like, oh, oh, okay, I get it now. Yeah, no, it's it, it's a really good interview because it's um like so you like about Kevin Smith, you you know that you can be kind of gloves off and there's no sort of editorial going on. So he's quite candid and quite sort of sweary and um you know talks about how he landed on the style that he did and got traveling in from wherever he was from, so like some some sort of shit old New Jersey way traveling in to drop off his samples at Marvel and stuff like that. Like he's mm. he's probably one of the last people of that kind of era. Right. Um, and it, it's really interesting. And like I said, it goes on forever. It's like two hours long. Mm-hmm. Um, but but yeah, I, I've got a lot lot of time for Capullo. Maybe not his self-image with his um, <laughs> with his with his biceps. And right. Yeah. That's 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 <laughs> I, I find that equally off-putting. So. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I'm glad you brings that to me because Kevin Smith's one of those guys where I can't be mad at him because I think he's genuinely a, a good, decent person and stuff. But he mm. also and, he, and he's a fan, obviously, and he knows the same stuff we know about. But he's just well, so... no, he doesn't. That's the problem. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Oh yeah. He doesn't. Okay. He, he's a he's a lot more. He, he's a lot less into it mm-hmm. than you think. Okay. You know, they didn't realize Capullo was doing Batman until like 30 issues into oh, it or something. He mentions within the interview. Okay. And and it, there's things that he says where there's things that he says of like oh and who was inking that or whatever where you realize that he's not he's not as dialed into it as mm-hmm. as you assume that he is but sorry I, I cut you off no 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 yeah. no uh, valid though uh yeah he he definitely has that dilettante quality and and like you said there's there's a lack of depth the, but my main thing is just the lack of ambition it's like <laughs> you know he, he he'll he's just such a superficial post most of the time and even when he tries to do something deep for him that's like the surface level for so many other creative people that it's like yeah. oh really that's that's as far as you can go that's steep as you can go is uh, okay okay sure so I, I i can't hate him i can't get really mad at him but i'm not i wouldn't qualify myself as a fan either but occasionally like you said he'll stumble upon something where it's like oh this okay this is a value you've, you've stumbled onto something like probably capullo would not be somebody who would do well in like a really intense in, uh, interview environment but i would assume that if you're hanging out bullshitting maybe smoking some pot knowing smith that might yeah. loosen you up and you might get something out of that that you wouldn't get otherwise so i'm glad you put uh, turned me on to that one yeah and, and there's a few good ones he, he, he interviews Neil Adams I think there's a Jim Lee one there's a Joe Crusader one which is which is a sort of a two-parter but the second part for some reason took ages to come out mm. and then did eventually but it felt like there was some weird sort of disconnect there like like he'd been told by Marvel or something not to put it out or so. I, I don't know but did, did you know the story about um, about Joe Crusader and, um, and Jimmy Palmiotti well, j- j- well no I'll fill me in on that in a second Joe, Joe Cusada basically getting told by DC that he'd never get any Batman work because of Wizard um, that sounds vaguely familiar go ahead though you, you know that cover where it's like Asbat's mm-hmm. incomplete silhouette on Wizard yeah and it's just got like a little kind of a belt buckle and mm-hmm. it's like complete silhouette and it's just got little little bits on it basically Wizard told Joe Cusada that they've been given the go ahead to publish his cover with Asbat's on it and so Joe Cusada drew it and then DC got wind of it put the kibosh on it told Wizard that they had to edit it and then told Joe Quezada that because he betrayed the you know this unspoken um, what do you call it uh, non-disclosure agreement that he'd never work on Batman again he was like well the only thing I want to work on here is Batman so I guess I'll go and work at Marvel or do my own thing mm-hmm. 
mm. and that's why we that's why we got sort of Azrael, a load of covers, and then nothing else from Joe Bizarro at DC. That's interesting, but I'd always worked under the assumption that it's like, oh, well, you guys, I, I, it's just like with most of the Image guys, is they start out at DC, they stay there until they become hot, and then they go to some place where they can actually pay them properly. So I just assumed <laughs> yeah. that he did those covers for a little while there, and then I assumed that Diet was paying more money, and he just went over there. But to know that DC shot themselves in the foot d- despite themselves. Getting rid of the only image artist that they had. Right, <laughs> right. Or the only image caliber St- Yeah, yeah. Had. Well, he could have been. That's one of the things that was always weird with Quesada is that he should have, they should have never had event studios. He should have just been one of the image guys. I think that would have been beneficial to their careers and beneficial mm. to their sales. And it would have given a, a, a feather in the cap to image at a time where I think they could have used it. And instead, he was one of the villain guys who, like, sort of like the, scr- the not a scab, but he was one of the guys that hung on when everybody else had left and still helped to keep up the momentum of these other publishers mm. and, and and I realized too that he was kind of coming up in the time period where Image was mismanaging the you know where they were cutting ties with all those creators because your books are too late blah 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 and obviously yeah. Quesada wasn't a timely guy either but yeah it, it is kind of a shame I mean it's not really a shame I think I, things worked out perfectly fine for Joe <laughs> um, yeah. but it's too bad that you know the event was like a, this blip that comes and goes because I think the animosity between him and Pound the Audi is such that you're never going to see anything come out of that ever again and I'm sure so do you know anything about that do you know have you got any sort of rumors around why they was it just because Cusada got the editorial chief that's the assumption right I I think that's a a reasonably safe assumption because they were fine together with Marvel Knights and everything until Mm. he got the EIC uh, tap and I think that one of the major issues was that Palmiotti wanted to be able to continue to do stuff with event and knowing that Joe would be tied up with Marvel for years like okay well let me do some Ash stuff let me do 22 Brides and all this other you know uh, what's Painkiller Jane and you know let me let me con- maintain the event while you go off and do your Marvel thing and I think Joe said no you're not doing anything without me and so all that stuff just withered on the vine and oh, Jimmy Palmiotti had to basically start from scratch creatively plus because of the personal animosity with Joe I don't even think he was doing a lot of inking work at Marvel he, he started working at other companies so mm. yeah it, but I think ultimately it, it comes down to Joe Quesada telling him no and letting him kind of fend for himself as a result of that. Oh, interesting. Yeah, because because Palmiotti, like, yeah, that's been an interesting career post Marvel yeah. Knights. Like, I, I think he's he's sort of co-written some interesting stuff with Justin Gray. Mm-hmm. I don't know what the dynamic is with with them with them two, but I think he's a, he's a pretty terrible inker, to be honest. Um, it it depends seen, on who he's working with, but he, yeah, because what, what have you seen him good on? Because even on Kazada, it feels like because he's fine on Kazada, but but Joe Kazada's also better with almost everyone else. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I like I didn't I never liked Danny Miki on Casada. So for starters, not being Danny Miki is, is already a plus. I mm. liked his uh, Sienkiewicz lift because for a while there, like he was inking Sabushima with that Sienkiewicz line. And I think he might have yeah. also done some of the Aparo stuff, but Aparo had actual Sienkiewicz for some of that stuff too. So I, I liked when he was doing that. He's never been like an exemplar for me. I've never been like, oh man, why don't you get Jimmy Palmiotti for this? But I don't remember mm. him doing a lot of stuff where I was like, man, this, he's ruining this book. So more of a journeyman in that respect. But I like him as a person. I like his mentality. Uh, you know, yeah. he, he's got that long relationship with Amanda uh, Connor, and I think that speaks well to him because I think they're both cool people. Um, yeah. And uh, like, the, uh, while I never got into their Jonah Hex series, when I would dip into, uh, usually I'd buy like the, the standalone stories, one issue where they'd get like a Gull AC or the one they where they got Jordy Bernay, you know, when they would get an yeah. interesting artist to come in, I'd read it. And I liked it. I just never felt strongly enough about it to read this 
stuff. But people really loved their Jonah Hex series, and I thought that their um, quality revival stuff at DC was all right. He, you know, he's not going to make any of my fan favorite lists. Freedom Fighters. Yeah, yeah. Well, and then they also, yeah. in the New 52, they did the cycle where they were doing one-shots to try to reintroduce the New 52 versions of them. So, like, they okay. did a new Ray, they did a new Human Bomb, stuff like that. Uncle Sam, whatever, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, he's another one of these guys where if he were working on something that I had an interest in, that I'd probably be okay with him, but he almost never does. So, I, you know, I'm not, he's not going to make my top ten list or anything, but I, I don't dislike him either. He just seems like an alright guy, but a bit yeah. of a journeyman for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's fair enough. And then he's not working with Justin Gray anymore either, and that's like a, it's something. Well, Justin Gray isn't working though, so it's like yeah, I don't know if that's a falling out or it's just like the work drive. He's gone to Hollywood or something. Yeah, yeah. He's I mean, it's a staff no, writer on something. Yeah, he. I think he was. Uh, I, I want to say wasn't he working in advertising or something, or wasn't he doing like some sort of like magazine work or something? I think maybe it was okay. just a matter of they weren't getting hired as a writing combo anymore, and so he just you know kept working on other things. Yeah, I don't. I don't think. Yeah. I, mean, I haven't heard anything. It's not like an Andy Lanning kind of uh, 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 Dan Abnett situation where it's like we all want to know what the fuck happened with that situation you know those guys hmm, uh, after 30 years or 40 years yeah or something. and neither one of them have talked about it either it's like man who slept with whose wife you know what the, what happened there man you know, you know Davis and Farmer have broken up oh okay yeah so so Davis and Farmer was a sad one because basically Davis a uh, Farmer turned up at a con to find that he'd been sat separate from Davis without knowing why and then when he dug into it it turned out to be it was basically a scheduling thing he, he was supposed to be inking something for Davis that had been delayed and so some editor at Marvel had given Farmer another inking job and then David and and apparently that's what the falling out was about like something as mundane as that after what like mid middle of Excalibur 50 or something mm-hmm. like, like Excalibur 40 or whatever that was <laughs> yeah so that was like so it's like a 20 year long partnership and um that that's now dissolved and Davis is has gone back to inking his own work sadly um but, but yeah that that kind of thing that that's that's fucking fucking sad like I'm, I'm pretty sure we'll see more Jim Lee Scott Williams work because those two um, they got aside from maybe one of them wanting to pack it in or slow down they got no reason to stop working together I think yeah. well and I, I think Williams probably needs to work more as well since Jim Lee's got the whole corporate job to fall back on so I'm sure yeah. he's okay with, with his money where freelance inker without a staff job yeah <laughs> can, can you kick me something Jim you know yeah 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 how long before I mean if Jim Lee doesn't keep drawing how long before Scott Williams turns up at you know turns up inking X-Men or something again well um, that's just it I, I wish you know go ahead do that but they just they've really abandoned like I'm more in the loss of letterers I, I miss hand lettering and the more mm. you know it's like the same three or four guys seem to letter everything nowadays and so it all has that same uh, character and you don't have like a Todd Klein anymore you don't have a John Workman anymore and then yeah. with inking it, it, there are all these guys that I used to love and and there were art teams that I'm just not as interested in the artist without that particular inker um, and they're just not there anymore because nobody's getting anything inked hardly anymore yeah I, it, and you, you mentioned Greg Capullo at least he's still got Jonathan Clapion who does decent work over him he's not necessarily my favorite over Capullo but he does solid work over him yeah well, the Clapion one's weird because he was Tony Daniels inker wasn't he I think he was he was he was at X Extreme okay. and then I thought I thought that he was Tony Daniels inker on Spawn and Blood Feud and things but um, but Capullo Capullo when he first came to he, so he did what 50 odd issues of Batman the first 
first 10 or 11 Court of Owls were Glapian, and then all the rest were Danny Mickey. Oh, yeah, I didn't catch that. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. Because I'm, I'm not, I don't. Everything yeah. since is Glapian. Okay, weird. Yeah. Um, so I'm not quite, I, I don't know, I don't know if that's DC saying, well, Danny Mickey's our house style or something, because, mm-hmm. you know, John Romita, so Dean White was telling me that um, John Romita Jr. wanted him to colour Batman, uh, Superman Year One, and Miller was like, no, 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 I want, I want the best. I want Jim Lee's colorist um, and Jim Lee's colorist uh, Alex Sinclair can only color Jim Lee. Mm. Everything else he colors looks fucking dreadful. <laughs> um, so, so you got Frank Miller, John Romita Jr. with Danny Mickey inks. What? Alex Sinclair colors? Oh shit! Um, <laughs> and, that, and that book, like, if it, if it had been inked by Jensen, colored by Dean White, to this day I'd still be on the fence as to whether I liked it or not. Mm-hmm. But because the art is so fucked up in the last two parts of the process um, I'm quite happy to say that it was a bit of a, a bit of a shit show yeah Miller uh, and I, you know uh, Miller's another guy you look at his Batman work Alan Moore nobody wants to follow Alan Moore because he, he does such a great job with the characters and he's just smarter than so many of the people in the industry that when you try to follow yeah. him it just seems like a fool's errand where Miller <laughs> it's funny because he was so inspirational but you can you can do Miller you can you can like kinda, you, may, may, you may not do it as well as Miller many have yeah. But, but yeah but many haven't have been quite successful in doing so so he's an attainable level of, of, of quality and was very inspirational but man I don't know what happened to him I, I, again I haven't gone to look into it too much but like he, he it's just reverse Midas touch now and I wanted nothing to do with Superman year one just looking at oh well now he's going to be the military and he's going to be a soldier part of a black ops unit it's like no <laughs> no fuck you and really even since Dark Knight Returns I've I've known that I really wasn't uh, the audience for a Frank Miller Superman anyway because his he expressed such contempt for that character in one of the signature works that it's like I know plenty of people uh, Michael Bailey uh, chief among them who's will point to that miniseries as the downfall of Superman and how Superman has never <laughs> been able to be taken seriously as a character by a large percentage of the audience and the talent because of Dark Knight Returns so yeah I, I knew that was going to be a shit show and if, from everything I heard it absolutely was so you're, this is no surprise to me what you're telling me. Plus, well, let's be I, honest, like, look, he's also the guy who was defending Varley's coloring on Dark Knight Strikes Back, and <laughs> you know, <laughs> I mean, I don't know if you were on message boards in that time period, but nobody was on board with that shit. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I've got to say that Dark, Dark Knight Strikes Back was was one of those books that I was like, there aren't many things like it, in, in so far as, generally speaking, I'll read something, I'll put it down, and I'll have an opinion. Occasionally, I'll read it again years later and change that opinion. Dark Knight Strikes Back was a book that I read and then by the end of it I was like I don't know if I liked that or hated it and and I carried that with me long enough that at some point I decided that that was a that was in its favour like if 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 it if it neither pushes my buttons and pleases me and gives me a massage nor does it offend me like so terribly then there's something there and then slowly it's worked its way in and, and actually I'm, I'm I'm really quite fond of it at this point and colour wise um, colour wise I, I think that I would um I would sort of stand up. I, I certainly didn't like them at the time. I'd have been firmly in that camp. But at this point in time, with so much stuff looking really homogenous mm-hmm. and even looking like pleasantly homogenous, mm-hmm. you know, like inoffensively homogenous. There was a period of time when it was liquid and everything looked like shit. Yeah. Um, but at this point in time, there's like, which what, what type of colours are we going to get? We're going to get Dave Stewart-y colours or we're going to get uh, pastel colours or everything feels of a kind. Mm-hmm. And you certainly can't say that of Dark Knight Strong 
strikes. So true, true. I think it's aged well in the, in that sense because there's nothing else that looks like it. Um, but I mean, that's that's not. I wouldn't defend it. It's not something I've tried to defend to anybody else. Mm-hmm. I'm just I'm I'm fine with it. <laughs> you know, I, I haven't reread it since it was being released. I remember though, I, I I liked it so much that because we ran short on the first couple of issues because the band was high, I, I read them and I was like, okay, well, I'll go ahead and sell my personal copies. And then by the third one, thankfully, because I think it came late, I was able to return those because I didn't need to sell my personal copy. I had plenty left over of that third issue. Um, yeah. But I just never felt a desire to revisit it because it was another one of those deals where it's like a bad sequel, don't go home, you can't never go home again kind of thing. <laughs> the only thing I remember liking was the Adam in the Petri dish, Savage Land, Adam basically in the Petri dish. That was the best bit of the book. Yeah. <laughs> and then I think about Superman and Wonder Woman fucking in midair. I'm just like, oh God, no, no. So it's, one of these days I'll probably go back to it just for shits and giggles or just for a project. But um, boy, there's so many other things that had a lot of that line. I don't know if it's ever going to actually happen. But, but I do, I definitely understand your perspective on the coloring. Yeah, sometimes the thing that you can't stand in the moment, that anachronistic quality, that, that, that uh, you know, uh, 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 what was it they were bitching about? Was it uh, Photoshop? Like first gen Photoshop? Yeah, obvious filters. Yeah. Um, but, I but can then, see that being then, quaint now and, and actually uh, pinning it to its time period in a way that might be more novel now than it was then. Yeah, and, and um, like Carl Baker sort of gave a her crash course on Photoshop um, and when you see like Carl Baker's you know digital digital work um, you can see some of like, like uh, he, he was an early adopter and he was fucking around with some like seriously cheesy filters on some of his like You Are Here and, mm-hmm. um, and, and, and those books so I, I can sort of see that influence I think I again like tweet, Twitter is my only social media so mm-hmm. if I, I, and I and it sounds asinine talking about well I tweeted this and I tweeted that um and but I did I tweeted something about what well, I think Carl Baker taught her based on something I read in comics journal and he came back and said well no I showed her the ropes you know um, I gave her the gun showed her how to load it but I didn't try to fire it or something like that <laughs> <You know? laughs> don't blame me as the short version <laughs> more or less yeah um, but but I subsequently I got I got it in black and white in the in the Dark Knight in the noir series okay. and um, and while it's really nice it, it's great great to have it in black and white because the colors are so distinct um i don't know that it would have i don't know that it would have benefited from lynn's varley's classic color style and i don't know that anybody else could have colored it and i don't know that it should have been published in black and white so like with those three things in mind mm. the final version is probably the only version that should have existed you know yeah well and also we were so used to seeing miller in black and white and he was so used to working uh in black and white in that time period that it is weird to have him be colored but as you mentioned that mid-80s coloring that's so a part of Dark Knight Returns is also such a part of that time period it would have been weird to see that sort of thing in the year 2000 you know so yeah. it, I see where you're coming from on that yeah yeah. I, I don't know I can't I can't defend it I mean and, and like with Miller as well I'm kind of a um, like I, I never want to get the name I never want to get branded like an apologist right you now I just I just have my opinions yeah I, I think I think that Holy Terror was rubbish yeah um, well I mean and that was part but, of the problem with Dark Knight Strikes Back is that 9-11 fucked up his plans for that and he redrew everything and incorporated his immediate feelings about that into the story which is another yeah. whole thing that I hate about that book so 
<laughs> yeah. The, the, the sort of weird mm-hmm. like change of tone in the third mm-hmm. issue with like uh, Billy Batson standing in the Twin Towers or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that that was pretty odd. But it, it, it's weird. I think um, I think in terms of like holy holy terror, it, it it's pretty grim. And um, there, there's but I I tried to read it kind of objectively. And the thing is, objectivism doesn't work with it because there's more to it than that. But there's actually well, only the, a couple the work of is in inherently skewed. Like the work is inherently has an ideology to it. So you can't impassively yeah. look at that. The work demands that you come at it with an opinion or take an opinion out of the work. It's almost more of an editorial cartoon than it is a, a story anyway. So it, yeah. you, 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 it, it can't be taken impassively. You either are a pro or against whatever the fuck he was doing in that thing. You, you, you know, there's no, you have no choice in the matter. You have to take a side basically. <laughs> yeah. Well, the, 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 he doesn't, he doesn't go into like in that there's only, I think there's only a couple of lines which I would deem like inappropriate like mm-hmm. there's a thing where he says he says something like alright Ahmed or Imran or whatever your name is it's got to be one of those two like that's the kind mm-hmm. that's for me that's about as kind of like living in the UK mm-hmm. and 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 growing up in around that sort of, sort of racism towards brown people basically mm-hmm. rather than black people yeah um, That that's the only thing that sounds to me like actually racist the rest of it just feels racist yeah <laughs> <laughs> the implication so is there. It's, it's, it's like Kevin O'Neill being censored by the C, uh, the the Comics Code Authority, just because his style is inherently offensive. Yeah, it's it's a lot like that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and those um, I, I picked up recently. I picked up the um, Kevin O'Neill Green Lantern issues that he did, and uh, and I'd had them before, but I wasn't into Kevin O'Neill at the time. So I had them when I had Dave Gibbons does one of them, and it's like the first. Um, what's his name? Um, uh, the, the the Black Green Lantern. What's his name? Oh, John Stewart. Um, John Stewart. Mm-hmm. So it's the first John Stewart in costume. Okay. And I, I, I lucked into them on eBay at a really reasonable price with because everyone else wants them because of that. And I wanted mm-hmm. them because it's got Kevin O'Neill in the back. Yeah. But it's full of these Kevin O'Neill monsters. You know, it's kind of like people with eyes in their teeth and just it's like <laughs> horrific stuff um, that like now with with his latter style on League of Extraordinary Gentlemen stuff, he, he's, he, he's almost kind of mellow with age a bit mm-hmm. but there was something about that period of time um, that, that that Tales of the Green Lantern story where where Abin Sur is getting kind of basically programmed to fail um, by demons and stuff mm-hmm. like man that stuff it, 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 it's, it's beautiful but it's horrific mm-hmm. and yeah you're right I, I could see why old ladies with a rubber stamp would decide that it was inappropriate yeah. for, for American children well and again <laughs> he could he could have drawn one of those old ladies and it would still look perverse. It's just something inherent in his style in that time period was just so punk that he couldn't, he couldn't turn it off, you know? But getting back to the Frank Miller thing, you know, obviously I've been talking shade, but one thing that I, I do have a lot of trouble with, and I really do need to do a Dark Knight uh, Returns review or something, you can't dispute who Frank Miller was in the 80s and what he contributed to comics literature, you know? It, it's just that, you know, you saw that steady decline over the course of the 90s, and really from when he took his sabbatical to go do screenwriting he never came all the way back from that in terms of the yeah. the integrity of the work I think that um, the first Sin City mini uh, the serial uh, he came back with a passion and so that was an exception but you look at a lot of that other stuff he was doing in that same time period where it's just not 
he's just not as invested in it and it's just not as good. And there's a lot of that like Hollywood mentality that he brings to it that I think hurts the work. But I, I don't care for all these uh, Twitterati who try to act like Frank Miller wasn't Frank Miller in the 80s and try to pretend like <laughs> this, this stuff doesn't hold up. It's just, just, just because you've been exposed to a Frank Miller style Batman for decades doesn't mean that it wasn't a seismic shift in that time period. And I am one of the people who as I've gotten older has shifted away from Dark Knight Returns and more toward year one. But both of them are still pillars, you know, of yeah. art form. And to have so many people uh, decide that because of Miller's politics that they're just going to hate the work, like, you can't do that yeah. because then you're then it's uh, fucking Orwellian bullshit. It's like, don't act like he wasn't what he was. Uh, and that, and I don't think that all the work holds up, um, but I think enough of it holds up that you can't uh, disregard him. He can't just be set aside as like the weird old crank, you know, yeah. there's no value to that work. Bullshit. Did, did you, um, so a couple of things. So, so there was the thing about getting invited to Thought Bubble, the UK Comic Con, mm-hmm. and then getting, and uninvited. then, and then getting uninvited because someone was like, this is the man who did Holy Terror. How could you invite him? And then, you know, um, 35 webcomic authors signed a petition or something. <laughs> and, and, and so Frank Miller got cancelled from, from that show. Mm-hmm. Um, but like leaning and leaning into what you're saying. I mean, I, I, I think I've heard, I, I, I'm pretty sure I've heard, I know Alan Moore described him as right wing mm-hmm. and I'm pretty sure I've heard him described as right wing on, on your show by, 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 by you or somebody else. Mm-hmm. But I don't think that's the word for him. You know, I think he's, um, I think he's a fallen. So, so, so my take on Frank Miller is that he's a small town boy who, who moved to the, moved to the big city, got himself a job, self-educated like he's autodidactic he's mm-hmm. he's but but like a lot of people he's he's run into the problem where in the absence of a teacher he's just read this book and then he's read the book that that person recommends mm-hmm. it's like pre-algorithm mm-hmm. learning so so he's ended up at Anne Rand because he likes Steve Ditko or whatever mm-hmm. so so his whole worldview is defined by fucking Dashiell Hammett Anne Rand and Steve Ditko right and then he got mugged and then that changed his whole politics and then September the 11th happened and that changed his whole but like like it sounds incredibly patronizing but i don't think he i, I think he misses he's missing like a, a an education that would have given him the worldview that someone like alan moore has mm-hmm. um and alan moore i don't even know what his education is I, i'm pretty sure he's also self-taught but he just read everything whereas frank miller has that vibe of someone who's just just done hopscotch from right. from one creator to the the next nearest creator and and had a couple of life things that have thrown him off along the way and um I, I don't think I don't think he's I think he would probably still consider himself liberal and and his whole like the three the, the 300 thing you know that there was a bit of that in his daredevil run of the hot gates and get them through like a narrow space and then two men can take out 500 like all of that was in his daredevil that three 300 was 25 years in the making or whatever give me liberty is an incredibly like give me liberty is in line with my politics today you know um, Give Me Liberty strikes me as a very sort of liberal piece of work and I, I don't think he's gone too far from that he's just he's not published enough and he's he's being near 9-11 made him do some weird stuff and then he became a coke addict and an alcoholic and got all fucked up you know um, 
Sorry. No, no, it's good. It's, uh, um, I, I have a, a similar opinion with some divergences. Uh, I don't know. I, I'm assuming you guys have it over there, but uh, I we definitely have it over here. Basically, uh, right-wing politicians uh, and the, the money behind them essentially took over AM radio. Um, and so... For, and right, the, right, exactly. Uh, and so you've yeah. had decades of that AM talk radio where they try to, well, I'm a reasonable person. I just don't believe that women should yeah, have a vote. We, don't, we don't have that. Yeah. <laughs> And so I know a lot of these artists, especially these the guys of his generation, they didn't have the internet, they didn't have streaming stuff, and so they would put on the radio to be their companions while they were working on their their, their drawings, especially because mm. it often seems to be the artists who got hooked into that. And like a lot of the other Americans, I think that just hours and hours of these guys making their points about stuff would lead to a guy like Frank Miller, who you'd say has uh, some liberal principles, but then is also talking about those dirty rapists uh, at Occupy Wall Street protests and stuff yeah yeah that was like like for me to be honest more than holy terror as a demonstration of like his politics those kind of comments seem more um decisive right and i i think i agree with you i don't think that he is a, a very literate person i think he likes what he likes he likes history and so he, he read up on the uh, jeep drives on that and that's how you end up with something like a 300 and he likes mm. his, his detective novels and stuff but i, I don't i don't know any and of course he's always been very cinema literate he likes the visual style of the cinema and always incorporated that into his work the same way Will Eisner did but he's just I don't think he's super well read and I do think that like you said he's had his opinion swayed by other forces I just don't think it goes as far as reading Ayn Rand I think it goes as far as listening to people who parrot stuff from her <laughs> yeah uh, I, so yeah I, I, a lot of it is it's that weird hash of ideas that aren't compatible because you haven't thought them through to their natural conclusions because you're just sort of passively receiving a lot of this stuff so that's, he, he's, that's a, he's a forerunner yeah. for the for like modern sensibilities. Mm -hmm. You know, he, he's a he's a proto he's a proto Twitter maniac. You yeah, know? yeah, <laughs> um, and yeah, I, I, and I, I do think that he's recognized the the harm he's done himself. And I think that's one of the reasons why you just don't hear a lot from him these days. Very much, uh, I think. Yeah. But uh, but uh, yeah, I, I I tend to agree with you. I I don't know that he's like small town kid made good or anything, but I, I do think that he hasn't thought through a lot of this stuff in a way that he probably needed to in order to respond to it in a way that people can take seriously. I think that's one of my main issues with something like Holy Terror is he's on the side of very that that Bill Maher, well, why don't you people get together and, and take care of your own and make sure they're not blowing stuff up and, and being bad guys. And it's like, yeah. oh yeah, well, um, white Christian, uh, <laughs> well, let's have a talk about, you know, some of the shit we've gotten up to or, yeah. you know, that kind of shit. So, um, yeah, I, I think there's just a lack of perspective and I don't want to say gullibility, but um, again, Naivety, uh, for sure. Colonel Dr. Crispy over here, he's just reacting to the last thing he heard without <laughs> the whole process. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty good. Bring it back. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so anyway, I thought Aliens Labyrinth was pretty, pretty subtle. <laughs> <laughs> don't don't fuck with me like that, man. I don't need to try to find the the, the edit point at three hours and thirty eight minutes in. Okay, <laughs> don't be busting my balls here. <laughs> so so do me a favor then. So top who? It's not an easy thing to do, but like mm -hmm. top five artists, like artists who you would buy books for. Yeah, that's not so difficult because as a guy who mostly buys for characters and writers, I, I definitely mm -hmm. buy for artists too, but if you're going one, two, three, it's going to be probably character, writer, artist, or writer, character, artist. Um, but but you probably have the inver inverse of me. If you ask me for top five writers, right. I'd be like, who would I most want to see Frank Quietly draw for? Right. So yeah. 
so if you're thinking Jerome DeMattis is your number one, then who's the best artist? To, you know? Yeah, exactly. But so, but 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 my approach is who are the guys that I will buy a book for, even if I don't freaking like the writer, or even even if I don't like the character, yeah. what will I buy? And so for me, Paul Galassi, I, I just okay. I, I adore his stuff. I've always loved his stuff. Uh, Mark Texera would be on that list. Uh, Steve Lytle would be on that list. Uh, Jim Starlin, although generally I, the stuff that Jim Starlin draws, he also writes. So and a lot of times it's the writing and uh, you know d- d- confessional, not so much since the '90s, you know, but the the yeah. '80s and '70s stuff more. Um, I'm trying to think of who else. Barry Smith is another guy that I'm not. He's not in the same league of the other guys because like you talked about. Oh, remember his Archer and Armstrong run? It's like I didn't buy those. You know, I, I, <laughs> yeah. I, I didn't buy most I, of I the stuff. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I'm not the guy, but but I did make sure to pick up you know monsters when that came out, and I need to get around to reading it. But it's Bible thick, so it's like mm. I'll, I'll get around. Maybe I'll take it on, on a trip or something with me. Um, I'm trying to think of who else would be in that category, but that's a, that's a pretty good starting point. You know, if if one of those guys draws a book, there's a very good chance I'm going to pick it up regardless, just because I have such an affection for their art. So um, I can't think of anybody else right off the top of my head. I'm sure there's going to be somebody like fuck, I forgot so and so, but just off the, off the top of my head, those are the guys. But that's so. So for me, like on on that list, like Jim Starlin is someone who I've never had any interest in at all. Mm-hmm. He's and a, then I've reached... very unique anatomy. You know, yeah. I can see where that'd be very off-putting for a lot of people. His very wonky ass anatomy, for instance. Yeah. So so Ron Lim, I don't like at all. Mm-hmm. And Ron Lim is like wannabe Jim Starlin. And and for me, it's that kind of like never taken a life drawing class. Mm-hmm. Um, oh yeah, he's I, I so much everyone, a person. I don't need everyone to be he, John Buscema. I remember people complaining about Rob Liefeld because he's one of these guys who draws like somebody who ever only learned to draw comics from comics. And Ron Lim yeah. is one thousand percent that same guy. <laughs> you just so you, you know you bringing that up. I did like his earlier stuff when he was just drawing a book a month, like the earlier uh, 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 Silver Surfer issues and X Mutants and stuff like that. Hero Alliance, which nobody remembers anymore. Mm. Um, but yeah, once yeah. he became the guy who drew two Marvel books a month for five years straight, yeah, that, that stuff is very off-putting to me. It's just so comics. It's just so generic comic book thing, you know? Yeah, it, it, it looks like what um it looks like what some TV executive would expect uh, a poster of a comic to look like. You know, it's, it's the lowest common denominator comic. Um, but but I recently picked up the um the the Warlock Gallery edition, big oversized hardcover of, of same, and that's fucking lovely. That's um that's kind of made me re reevaluate Jim Jim Starlin's art a bit. I've got to say, I mean, there's Steve Lealoa inks on it, which helps. Um, but but regardless, I'm I'm I was quite surprised how much I'm enjoying it. Um, and then Paul Galassi, I kind of Paul Galassi, I've come to backwards. So I wasn't too keen on so much of his kind of wide eyed, kind of cataracty looking people. Um, everyone standing like 100% facing the camera um, and all, all quite rigid but I've I've come to I've never read the Master of Kung Fu stuff but I've read so much good stuff like Six from Sirius Six and uh, Slash Maraud a couple of Batman issues he did which are just phenomenal um, I've yeah I've re reevaluated Galassi as well and then Steve Lytle did too few comics like I've, I'm not a legion of superheroes guy so I've not read a lot of that but the the Typhoid Mary thing that he did for for Marvel and that the the Red Sonja comic that I mentioned in my tweet um, about your in response to your Conan that Red Sonja comic is fucking gorgeous what like what a what a loss that that guy didn't do more comics 
Yeah, I, they, he had a period there because he was not prolific, as as pointed out. He was cover guy, right? Mostly, yeah. Especially, uh, he, he made his bones on Legion of Superheroes, and after that, he mostly did covers for various DC books for years and years until I think maybe that dried up a little bit. Uh, but he had a period where he was doing a cycling series of, of serials for um, Marvel Comics Presents. And in particular, he did a lot of stuff with Anacinti involving the typhoid character, Typhoid Mary. Yeah. And they did collect that into a trade. And I was very happy to look at those books. They're, they're very weird. And they, I don't know how well they hold up because I haven't reread them in ages. But it Typhoid's liked, Kiss, it was called. Typhoid's Kiss, right. Yeah. And I think it had a Joe Metarera cover, in fact, um, from a random Spider-Man uh, uh, appearance by the character. Um, but... That's a nice little collection of him drawing very much in that same style as he did the Red Sonia. Although some of it's a little bit more rough. I think he was trying to incorporate some more Frank Miller of uh, Sin City stuff into his mix. Um, but it's a nice little collection of him drawing in that style. But what I'd really love for them to do is a collection of his covers too. Because he, just especially on Legion, just some truly yeah. fantastic covers. Um, and also he had a tendency, he would do an issue here, issue there. And it would have been nice after he passed if they'd have done some kind of memorial where they just put all that stuff into one book. And that would... I would 100% line up for that. Um, yeah, it, but mostly it's covers and trade, I'm sorry, uh, uh, trading cards and just like various spot illustrations. He was an okay sequential artist, um, but he, like, he, he just wasn't remotely prolific. And so it, it's mostly defined by the, the single images that he produced. Yeah. And, and who, who else did you say? I mean, Barry Winter Smith is, is an obvious one. Um, but but yeah, so, so who, who, oh, yeah, Mark Tex. I mean, he's just, he, he's just great. I mean, my first Mark text was the Maverick backups in <laughs> X-Men 10 and 11 or whatever it was. In fact, I say whatever it was. I know it was X-Men 10 and 11. And, um, and then the Wolverine that followed. And, and for me, that, that Wolverine run was was brilliant, apart from Wolverine being six foot eight or something. Um, but you had Mark text for six issues, seven issues. And then there's a fill-in and they get fucking Mark Pazella. I mean, just unbelievable. The story's just utterly undermined by the fact that the art changes for the horrific for one or two issues so so yeah I don't own any of those anymore yeah Pacella was definitely a guy I loathed Mark Pagerulo was another guy who just kept ruining comics <laughs> yeah. for me uh, basically anybody who did uh, JLA that wasn't uh, Howard Porter in that time period like Val Simics I, I've never liked his stuff uh, but at least he's competent but I just don't like his stuff but yeah uh, Mark Pagerulo Mark Pacella those are guys who just like I, 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 I one of my great discs is like I, if I'm looking at a comic book and I'm like I'm pretty sure I could have done this better. Uh, and those are both guys <laughs> yeah. that at least get me into that particular area where it's like I could have, I could have probably, you know, I'm, I'm not anything. I'm, I'm pretty awful, but I don't think I'm quite as awful as these guys. Yeah, well, well the, the the Mark Pacella one's interesting because in the so during lockdown I've had a few, I've had a few sort of uh, reevaluations or discoveries of stuff that I already knew about, but I've I've, I've suddenly gone actually, you know what? Um, and so there was a load of grew. I, I had a load of grew. And then thought, fuck, I should, this lockdown stuff is pretty depressing. I'm going to get a load of group. And so I basically spent about a year filling in every Aragonas gap that I could. And I've got tons of Sergio Aragonas comics now. And be part, probably because of the need for, for, for laughing in, in modern life. Um, but another one was uh, Mr. Monster. And Mr. Monster, in some of the later stuff, is drawn. So Michael T. Gilbert is is his own man. But for a lot of Mr. Monster, he's actually not there. He's, he's laying it out writing it laying it out but not finishing it and Mark Purcell is actually doing the finishes on several of the Mr. Monster comics and that was my kind of oh god this guy existed before Rob Liefeld decided
decided that he was leaving X-Force um, and so yeah he's still I mean still terrible by by any measure afterwards but I suspect that he might have been an artist at some point before before following Liefeld well it, for a while there Michelle Fife was talking up Vince Giorano and it's like yeah, yeah if you go no, back if you go back no. far enough there was a time where he could do some okay artwork but he's another one of those guys where it's like don't you know miss me with that bullshit you know yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah you, you I, I, I was having flashbacks from all the research I was doing on the Michael T. Gilbert stuff for Spawnometer and the, the proto black uh, proto trencher proto black ball you know that kind of stuff which I still need to get back to yeah. for the second part um, so yeah yeah I, uh, another one though since you mentioned it because Dan Panosian was also doing a bunch of stuff around the same time period and he got to become mm. a good artist you know he 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 I think he was a good artist before and then he did the the period expected bullshit and he came back around again I think he's, he's like I really enjoy his cover work in, in recent years for instance yeah no he, he he's doing he's doing some great work I mean that his next thing is a Scott Snyder book but um like slots that he did looks like a Jack Davis Jack Davis influenced kind of mm-hmm. um very crime, 60s crime quality yeah very very 60s paperback pulp kind of thing going on with him so I dig that yeah I, I yeah number notions come back come back great annoyingly he did like two out of four like I picked up a couple of issues of Conan that he did for Dark Horse mm. but they were parts three and four of a five part story or something but they looked looked amazing it's just really irritating that it wasn't wasn't the whole thing mm-hmm. um, but yeah I forgot about your your Michael T. Gilbert <laughs> bit just just to tie into the fucking trencher right <laughs> well see the, the plan was it was it was for Blackball Comics and all the guys who would make Blackball Comics but then yeah. the schedule of Spawnometer fell off a cliff repeatedly he's like how do you fall off a cliff twice like somehow we hit a we had a plateau and then fell off another one but yeah there it was always intended to be a two-parter and the first part was going to be before trencher was that image and then the second part was going to be after where it continued on with black ball and simon bisley and um all the other guys mark hempel and uh held uh, uh bar was in that mix too because he was supposed to do a book for them yeah and so that's just sitting on the computer you know waiting to be resolved now uh because literally i've got shit that's years old for Spawnometer like I, I, I've recorded the Wetworks episodes years ago <laughs> and it's just a matter of actually editing them into something cogent um, how, how far do you go with Wetworks? the entire series <laughs> Yeah, I, I basically, I, I try to do the entire series in one episode with two different people at two different times. And so it's going back through that material and editing into ideally one or two episodes at most. Um, but you didn't do that with Wildcats, right? No, like no, Wild, no. See, the, here's the thing. What made you go full war on Wildcats? Because what works? Cause... Oh, uh, because uh, it was a, a creator-owned book, or it wasn't really a creator-owned book. It was supposed to be a creator-owned book whose creator left it within the first year and it just became this uh, baby, you know, mini-major corporate nonsense so it's like mm. most of Wildstorm since it got sold out to DC I don't feel like it deserves to be covered as, as part of Spawnometer because the part of it is the I want to talk about creator owned books and I don't want to have a creator owned book podcast where I'm talking about DC properties all the fucking time so it's yeah. like okay so I, I read through the entire run of Wetworks and it's like okay I want to just fucking vomit this shit into a podcast and be done with it and unfortunately uh, Mr. Fixit wasn't a great receptacle for all that creative vomit and so then I went 
went over to Ryan Daly and, and vomited on him too and got a little bit of his words in as well. <laughs> and now I got to go through like five hours of recordings or something and turn it into uh, hopefully an hour or two long podcast. So that's that's the kind of dumb shit that makes Spawn Albert not happen. <laughs> yeah. He's yeah. 40. He's using wet works. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's not all bad. It's just funny because if you go and also Will Sportacio's life and career is very interesting in and of itself. So that's why I think it's going to be at least two because I, I, I took all this found interview material and it's like, holy shit, you went into a diabetic coma for six months and all kinds of shit like that. Like, what the hell? <laughs> yeah. So, so and, and, and it was it was a bit weird. Like, I remember at, at the time, like not knowing anything about him before. It was like, oh, so he's got this comic called Wetworks coming out. Great. And from the preview in Wildcat, it looks like it's going to be Predator, but with people that are made of gold. So that looks great. And it's like, his sister's just died of lupus. And I maybe it's because of studying Latin, but I was like, lupus, that means wolf. I've never heard of that, to be honest, otherwise. And then it's like, Wetworks is going to be about vampires versus werewolves. And I was like, hang on, what? <laughs> so it was like, did his sister's disease define everything about Wetworks and completely change it from being gold people doing predator shit? But I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> no, actually, if I recall correctly from the research, that was an entirely different person responsible for that because he, if you look at the, his original game plan, he was wanting to do something kind of along the lines of Akira, but with a super team. Where they're, they're, oh, okay. Yeah. And uh, it, it, somebody, I think the, um, might have been, I don't know, I don't think it was Brandon Choi, I think it was somebody else, suggested, well, why don't you have him fight the Universal Monsters building up to that? And then it never got out of that that trip, that zone because he got less and less to do with the material the further along it went. Mm. So he had a whole different thing that he wanted to do that, that they got away from almost immediately. So that's part of why I didn't want to spend a ton of time with it because like <laughs> this this isn't even what you wanted it to be, you know? So why, why are we going to spend all the time talking about <laughs> yeah. creating your own thing that you sold and, and have nothing to do with? Yeah. Which is a shame because I loved Wills Portacio. Uh, he was an absolute favorite of mine for a, for a long time there and I wanted to re- I, I never I, don't, I think I bought the first issue of Wetworks and that was the only one I ever bought in new in, in the time period because looking at all these dumb looking gold guys you know I, I was just like this isn't my bag so um, yeah and I liked it okay rereading it because I liked the whole monsters versus soldiers thing it was kind of cute uh, like you said kind of a predator thing but yeah it's it's it has its moments but it's it, it doesn't come to anything so it really feels like a Wait, waste of time reading it overall all the um, all the bullshit sort of legend type stuff is where it really fun. so I picked up issue one recently because I was going through like a Scott Williams inks thing mm-hmm. because he inked the first few Cyberforce he inked a couple of he inked Pit 2 but not 3 I think mm-hmm. yeah and that sounds uh, right I, I remember because the one that he inked was phenomenal and, and it looked I mean I always loved Del Keon stuff but it looked even better I felt like that one time he inked it I thought they were complimenting each other fairly well and I think he did like a Amazing Heroes cover with him as well just a few bits and pieces here and there with, yeah. him, with him making him yeah yeah so, so so you had the so you had Dale Keown doing all of his Marvels Hulk stuff then you had the preview from Youngblood 4 Pit 1 and then by all accounts he was like oh I didn't realise it would print so dark and then made some sort of shift got Joe Chiodo and colours everything turned orange but it's the line work was lovely but for some reason it got all superhero-y after number 2 but um but I digress I was getting all of my Scott Williams comics so I got um I got Wetworks 1 and then when I got Wetworks 1 I was like oh I wonder what happened next I can't remember what happened next so I got 2 and 3 and it's just so fucking trite just like everyone's called blood something or something blood you know it's like as bad as that wizard gag of you know choosing a, a word from column A and column B blood arm arm blood arm wing wing blood um, on the Wetworks it was everything was like blood wind and, and 
oh, we're subscribing to the 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 sucker, and it's just oh, it's just terrible, terrible. Yeah, and they never really hammered down the lore very well because again, nobody yeah. stayed. Like I don't think Brandon Choi lasted <laughs> either. I think they had uh, other creators in there by the teens, so there was just nobody was ever invested in that property. And yet, Tom McFoy made like half a dozen action figures of these guys, you know, which is the nineties <laughs> in a nutshell. Shell. It's like okay, nobody gives a shit about this. Nobody's invested in this. Let's make uh, you know, but they look cool. And yeah, they're some of the best McFarlane figures ever made, I felt like. Um, but yeah, the, the book itself is just like, what the fuck is this? It just meanders and it just gets really weird and they kill off characters willy-nilly and it, it's just kind of a mess. By the way, we we trailed off. Were you ever going to do your guys I buy stuff for whenever they come about, you know? Because I, I didn't mean to like, we, we just sort of no, kind of no. springboard so, off so, that. It's like, well, wait, were you going to do yours? <laughs> no, the, 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 um, the, the list of artists is probably too long. So I probably flipped. Oh yeah, that's, I figured you'd flip it, yeah. So, um, so, so Grant Morrison is someone that I'll normally pay attention to, um, and then otherwise, right? Like honestly, Grant Morrison and Alan Moore, and not many more. Like Neil Gaiman does so little that when he turns up, it tends to be a high-profile project. So you, everyone's looking at it, you know. Um, but it's not something that I necessarily care about and have to follow. But but Grant, Grant Morrison is someone who um, who does it for me, and Brian Azzarello is the other writer who's probably um, on my on my radar but doesn't generally disappoints for the most part um, and then Mark Wade I guess so that's five Alan Moore Alan, Alan Moore Grant Morrison Neil Gaiman Mark Wade and Brian Azzarello are the writers who I'll pay attention to although with varying levels of success like I, I don't claim to overly enjoy um, even 50% of what they do of the ones you named my most uh, routine purchase would be Grant Morrison uh, I, I don't I stay away from Marvel stuff when he does Marvel stuff but I, I'm at least interested in giving him a try uh, just because even if I don't like it I know he's going to be doing the best he can with what he's doing like he, he never seems to do a paycheck gig he's always gotten like really into it and has some sort of a passion for what he's working on uh, Alan yeah. Moore is, is brilliant at times but I've always found I've, and I'm sure I've mentioned this on podcasts so I'm sorry if I'm repeating myself but uh, he's that Kubrickian coldness and so there, uh, there were some things I really love like I, I really love his wild Cats run and I'm looking forward to eventually in the year 2035 or ever <laughs> probably like posthumously I'll be doing it in the afterlife uh, talking about that material um, why would you board <laughs> yeah with Gaiman I've been revisiting Gaiman because of the Sandman series on Netflix uh, I've I recently reread the first couple of trades so that we can talk about that on a podcast uh, a forthcoming um, and Gaiman was a guy who just absolutely blew my mind I think he impacted me the way that a lot of people were impacted by Alan Moore by expanding what I thought comic books could be but at the same time I generally don't like his stuff like it, it, I, even before the end of Sandman I was kind of over Sandman and then yeah. like everything he did post Sandman in comics just none of it did anything for me so it, like I, the stuff I love I love deeply but I only love so much stuff and I I, I you know it, it didn't have because I tried a lot of that shit you know I was a proper fanboy I bought the fucking Alice Cooper shit I bought you know all, <laughs> all, all, all the wonky stuff that he was doing in that time period I bought goddamn techno comics I'm sure techno that did not age. help his <laughs> reputation with me yeah um, so I don't feel but, strongly... but, I, but, I, but I start with him on death yeah and that's again that's Bacallo yeah and, and that was before I knew Bacallo so I came to it primarily because of the R mm-hmm. and because there was a number one that I could get into yeah. whereas Sandman was already on issue 20 or whatever um, but if I'd read Sandman cold I think the art probably would have would have turned me off mm-hmm. whereas now my, my favourite Neil Gaiman comics uh, Signal to Noise mm-hmm. 
Mr. Punch. Okay. Um, so date machine stuff. Violent cases. <laughs> yeah. I, I, but but not just because of the art, but just because they feel more like personal stories. And mm. and then um, P. Greg Russell's P. Greg Russell um, did adaptations of his Coraline. Um, I remember him doing. And, Coraline um, was Coraline was wicked. And then what's it called? It's not the Jungle, the Graveyard Book. I think it's called. They, did they adapt um, that one into comics? I didn't realize they did that one. Okay. Yeah. So well, that went straight to um, that was novelized by that was graphic novelized. So it was mm-hmm. two graphic novels mm-hmm. published by someone weird, Chronicle, Abraham, mm-hmm. Abraham. Harper Collins and yeah. Exactly. In fact, I think it might have been Harper Collins. Yeah. And then um but it's P. Greg Russell on his own, and then P. Greg Russell with Gallon Showman, but then P. Greg Russell with Kevin Nolan for about twenty pages, which is <laughs> fucking gorgeous. Right. Um and then P. Greg Russell with David Lafuente, uh, which is gorgeous, and P. Greg Russell with Scott Hampton. And and overall, between those two books, you've got a really good comic mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so, so 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 they're worth a look but but yeah ger- generally speaking I, I think Sandman falls apart like if they could go back and get Mark Hempel to draw the whole thing mm-hmm. or, or I, I, obviously well, not for me because I hated the Hempel stuff but for me <laughs> it's, I, I don't understand why Ke- uh, 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 Kelly Jones didn't draw the entire series after they pushed yeah, Bridgenberg yeah, off Kelly Jones you know? Charles Vest there's various yeah. people yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean I, I appreciate the diversity and certainly some of those artists worked really well on the specific books that they told the stories they told but yeah. like my my er artist would probably be Kelly Jones because it just felt like that was the most right of any artist to be able to actually do the entire series where there were some pieces like the Hempel stuff I just I struggled with I just I could not <laughs> I, I, it's not that I hate Mark Hempel I'm not a fan but I don't hate him I liked him on like Breathtaker and things like that but I the cognitive dissonance of yeah there you go the cognitive dissonance <laughs> of looking at his cartoonish art with the type of horror story that he was trying to they were trying to tell with the kindly ones I just couldn't resolve that ever now maybe if I go back and read it as an adult I'll, I'll feel differently about it but the interminable weight issue after you know issue I don't know I don't remember how long it was but it felt like it took two years to tell that story yeah. and I I, I I had such an axe to grind at the book by the time kindly ones was done that I, I never recovered in my affections as a result of that um, but like for instance I struggled with Sean McManus on a game of you but by the end of it I recognized what he brought to the table and you know I, I he was the right artist for that story after all but I didn't necessarily yeah. see that in the early going um but Hempel I never came around to on that story well, well I think I think Hempel like like I think potentially if like things had worked out differently then and Hempel would conceivably have been like Kevin O'Neill I think or, or Mick McMahon or somebody like that I think that's that's what Gaiman was going for you know mm-hmm. um the fact that O'Neill never did any straight like any of that kind of horror feels like a like a bit of a loss mm-hmm. um, but yeah for, for me for me Sandman the, the, the downside art wise is like Jill Thompson at that yeah, time yeah I struggle with Jill Thompson stuff too but what, I don't even remember the name of the arc but I didn't care for that one either yeah was it was it bits of it was framing sequences or it was like the majority of an arc even no I want um, to yeah. say she had an arc of her own I think it was might have been the one that preceded Himples in fact because I think there was this long period where I was not enjoying that book and buying it by <laughs> inertia and uh, Thompson's I've never completely warmed to Thompson in general anyway I, I respect her but I'm not a fan um, but but on the right story I, I'm, I'm sure she's fine I think that she's a good combination with Neil Gaiman I just don't remember liking the particular story that she did when she was working on Sandman I don't, yeah. I don't remember I, like well, I mean for starters the fact that I don't even remember what story she told but I remember from being <laughs> no. out there and I remember not liking it I, I'm curious now what the Sandman books were Blue page blog canoes
Chris Dunford, Chris Lyon, Dear Watchers, a Comics Omniverse podcast, Ed Moore, Explorer National Parks, Gregory Litchfield, The Hammer Strikes, Random Geeky Stuff, History of Comics on Film, I Was Joe Is, Jeffrey Bradley, Them, King Dinosaur, Mike and Sandinius to Me, Randy Caldwell, Resurrections, and Adam Warlock, and Dennis Podcast, Scott X, Speaker of the House, Kirk Spencer, Tim Bryce, the Podcrasher, and Ruben Wally, Tiny, sorry, Ruben Wally Dice, and YC, Role Playing Game Podcast. Next. Okay, uh, let's see.